Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on an episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me once again are two experts in the field of music and talking random shit. First up, Welcome return of Simon Price. Hello, Simon. How are you, mate? Um, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you, Al. <laughs> right. Listen, right. I'm Welsh. I'm ginger. I have freckles Whoa. and I'm a goth. How do you think I'm reacting to this weather right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sat here like Rab C. Nesbitt, basically, just like dying. It's grim. I've got a towel on my head. Actually, I'm a bit more like uh, Blackadder when he puts the shorts on his head and the pencils up his nostrils. That's what I look like right now. It's fucking horrible, isn't it? It's grim. Welsh people weren't meant for the hot weather and neither were goths. So I'm ticking two boxes. It's right. 1976 weather, mate. It's one year out. Two right, yeah. So what have you been up to, mate? I understand you get you gave a bit of a, a bit of a talk about Prince the other week. Oh yeah, well this is me now. I'm just like an international kind of academic, you know, I'm in demand at conferences all around the UK. I charge incredibly high fees. Um yeah, no, I I went up to Salford. Um it was a great thing actually. It was um called the Purple Rain Conference with you know R E I G N at Salford Uni and um it was in conjunction mm-hmm. with the University of Tennessee. And um, uh, nice. Des Dickerson from Prince's Band Revolution was there. And, oh, uh, oh it, yeah, I mean, it was just geeking out completely, getting very nerdy about Prince trivia and all kinds of aspects of it. Did you give a talk or were you part of a panel? I gave a talk, actually. I gave a talk about Prince as a live performer. And, uh, you know, he was the greatest live performer I ever saw. Uh, my, mm-hmm. my top five gigs of all time are all Prince gigs. So, yeah, um, yeah and uh, basically the way I saw it was every aspect of his persona, his sexuality, his religion, uh, his, his attitude to music and collaboration all plays itself out on stage. So uh, I crammed all that into 20 <laughs> minutes and, you know, hopefully nice I get one. a good impression. Did you kind of like do the splits and kick the microphone over and then hump it and <laughs> any of that? I did, yeah, but now I'm worried that I've got um, a potentially fatal addiction to uh, prescription painkillers. So we'll see how that works out for me. Do you think there's a danger of of uh, people like us over intellectualizing uh, pop music? You know, says says the man who hosts a podcast where we spend twenty minutes talking about a legs and co routine. No, I think we should intellectualize pop music more, and I think people who do it should be paid lots of money to do so. Yeah, I heartily concur with the above assessment. No, you know what? It's the highest art form. Yeah. 
pop music is the highest art form known to mankind. I really believe that. I mm. think it encompasses all the other art forms. I think it's greater than theatre, greater than film, greater than anything you care to mention. And, um, you know, I think anybody who says that there's anything wrong with intellectualising that, it's just some kind of weird, uh, weird snobbery at play. You know, mm. I'll tell you something I really hate, right? Um, it's, it's Private Eye's um, Suits Corner. Because... Yeah. Um, pretty much every issue, they have they have somebody on there who the, the only reason why the thing that they put in there is you know supposedly funny is that it's somebody using big words or big ideas about pop. And to the people who write Private Eye, that in itself is inherently ridiculous. Yeah. And I absolutely hate that because it is art. And you know, I think art criticism and analysis of art is a really important thing. And, and I, I think. A world with uncriticised art gets the art it deserves. In other words, shit. And my other guest this episode is none other than Neil Kulkarni. Welcome back, Neil. How are you? Hello, Al. I'm sweating my bollocks off. We mate. all are, mate. Not, yeah, not together. I'm, I'm I'm, you know, I must, I must <laughs> No, I'm good. I've, I've, you know, it's been a nice sort of couple of weeks of wallowing in, in Tory misery. Yes, mate, it's been lovely, I've really, really enjoyed. Uh, with regards to what Pricey was saying about uh, intellectualising pop music, um, I think there's not enough of it. And, and what's been shocking to me in recent years has been that actually some so-called pop critics, um, you know, they've sort of said, oh, it's only pop music. Or they've said to me, it's just pop music. Get over it if I've, if I've spewed out some rant or mm. something. I'm not going to get over it. I'm never going to get over it. I haven't got over it since I was about 10 years old. Yeah. So you, you spend your life absorbed in this art form, then yeah, damn right, it deserves intellectualization. It is the definitive art form of perhaps the last 50 or 60 years. So, so yeah, it can't be over-intellectualised as far as I'm concerned. Well said, Neil. Completely Excellent. agree. Excellent. So there we go. We've got the two intellectuals and I'm the thick twat who just asks the most stupidly <laughs> obvious questions. <laughs> so this episode, the episode we're looking at this week, we're going back, back, back to April the 10th, 1975. I mean, this was a very hard one to um, research because, number one, uh, I had to keep eliminating the band The 1975 from my, from my searches mm -hmm. and f just fuck that band entirely. But also, it's seen as, as the <laughs> one of the worst years in music history. Glam's disappearing through the rearview mirror. Uh, it, it, punk's a long way away. Um, disco hasn't really got started yet. And people just look back at it and go, this is, this is the absolute low point of, of, of pop music. What do you think? You get that a lot with 75. You get that a lot with several years. I mean, I think people say the same sort of thing about 80, 85, 86 as well. That, and, and it's always with the caveat that there was something around the corner and it had to get that bad so that this could happen. Obviously, in the case of 75, that nadir had to happen so that punk could happen. But I mean, I do think that usually when somebody says, oh, this is the worst year or this, is, this was a terrible year for pop music, A, they're probably not really reflecting everything that was going on. When you think back to 75, in terms of if you're just talking albums, you, you, Young Americans, Hissing the Summer Lawns, Horses, Marcus Garvey, there's like, tons of good albums out. Um, what I tend to find when people have that narrative that this is, a, this is a terrible year is really it's a terrible year for a certain type of music, perhaps. And I think in 75, it was probably a terrible year, perhaps, for rock bands, for, for, for white male rock bands. Yeah. But 
look elsewhere and there's there's way more interesting mm. things going on. I mean, I see 1975 like I see 1986. Um, you could look back on 1986 and if you weren't there, you'd think, oh, God, look mm-hmm. at all the shit in the charts. But the thing was, there was so much good stuff that was happening, that, that but it just wasn't making the charts. So, what was happening on the week of April the 10th, 1975? Well, the EEC referendum has been set for June the 5th. Eric Heffer has been sacked by Harold Wilson from the Department of Industry for kicking off about Europe. West Ham have just beaten Ipswich Town 2-1 in the FA Cup semi-final replay. And Leeds United have beaten Barcelona 2-1 in the first leg of the European Cup semis. But the big news this week is that Perry Como has been mobbed on stage by fans in Glasgow. (laughs) That's, That's what 1975 was like. On the cover of The Enemy this week, it's Rick Wakeman, who's shilling King Arthur on ice. Uh, The number one LP is 20 Greatest Hits by Tom Jones. The number one in America is Philadelphia Freedom by the Elton John Band. I don't know why he was going around as the Elton John Band. And the number one LP in the USA was Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. And already I can hear people pressing the pause button on their iPods and looking for something else. Stick with us. It's 1975. It's great. So, chaps, what were we doing in 1975? Uh, I was uh, not even three. Right. I was living in a, um old people's home. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was living in a flat above an old people's home in Coventry. Right. Um, and my world was small. My world was the flat, the corridor that the flat was in. Mm-hmm. The old people downstairs, they were all very... Scary, really. There's no other way of putting it. A lot of them were born, you know, born in the previous century, born in the 1800s, for Christ's sake. And, did you and, not? Did you not get a nuttall's minto off them or anything? <laughs> uh, usually, it was covered in fluff. Um, <laughs> but I used to. I, I, there's certain distinct memories I have at that time. I remember a real weekly point of excitement that was actually on the Thursday, whenever Topper Pops uh, was about to come on, was the snuff delivery. Right, snuff. <laughs> Um, which was then, you know, distributed amongst the residents. And this is a nasal um, stimulant, not um, this is a- not videos of um, <laughs> no. people getting murdered. <laughs> no, it wasn't cannibal, fo- cannibal Firox or anything. It was <laughs> it was um, little tins of snuff. I remember propping one, pr- prizing one open with my little toddler fingers and taking a big quack of it. And, um, <laughs> yeah, not a good idea. But yeah, uh, these are these are pre-pop times for me, to be honest with you, Al. Yeah. I don't think I. I mean, I was probably in the room when Top of the Pops was on, yeah. but uh, very dimly aware of pop, very dimly aware of music. Really, a very small to two-year-old world. The only other thing that happened that year was that um, my parents thought I was deaf, right? <laughs> because I refused to talk. I refused to talk to anybody, right? Um, and they were getting a bit worried by this time because I was about two and a half. And I hadn't said a word to anybody. So I actually ended up having to go to a little clinic nearby and they played me tapes and things like this. And uh, right. they deduced that I wasn't deaf, um, that I just didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, just can't be honest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that that was my 75. Very, very dim memories for me. I was very, that's very like, That's like the joke about the kid who just doesn't talk and the parents are so upset. And all of a sudden the kid says, Mum, my toaster's burnt. And she bursts into tears. And she says, why have you been so quiet for so long? And he says, well, everything was all right until now. <laughs> That's it. I had nothing to say. Yeah. And you made up for that in the, uh, oh, in the years gosh, to come. Ever since. Simon, 1975, what does it mean to you? 
1975, I was living in uh, 15 Park Crescent in Barrie, and it was a former Victorian orphanage. Um, oh, man. And the reason I mention that is because uh, I was uh, seven years old, and in that impressionable way that children Jesus. do, I kind of took that idea and ran with it, and I kind of hallucinated <laughs> the ghosts of uh, Victorian children and teachers in Victorian clothing wandering down the hallway. <laughs> Well, with a with a hoop and a stick. Um, the other thing I remember about that house is that my bedroom was right up in the attic, and uh, I was lying there one night, and the roof, the ceiling, fell in on me. Um, all the plaster fell in, oh, and no. I was covered all across the bed, covered in maggots. Oh no! Oh, um, God, this explains so much. Yeah. And I didn't mind. I wasn't freaked out because I was just at that age where you're not really mm. scared of stuff mm-hmm. like that yet. And I actually kind of treated them as pets and I created a a Lego submarine um, to put the maggots in. And I kind of put, I put them in the bath in this Lego submarine because we had to make our own fun in the 70s. One of the reasons why I think 1975 is a bad music year, because I, I always consider 1975 to be a bad year for me, because in the first week of 1975, we'd moved away from Heisen Green and we moved to a new estate where uh, in uh, in a place called Top Valley. So yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really like it, and I didn't really like the music. All my favourite bands, you know, like Gary Glitter and the Sweet, were, you know, they, they weren't as prominent as before. And you know, the new bands and the new things that were coming up, I wasn't that impressed by. But and we will talk about some of those bands later on. So, what else was on telly this day? Well, on BBC One, they've just broadcast Blue Peter, Yogi Bear, Magic Roundabout, and they've just finished an episode of Tomorrow's World where Raymond Baxter demonstrates a new telephone that can send her a picture of his cock to Judith Han. <laughs> Took ages, it really did. Uh, and the quality wasn't that good, it was just pixels. But BBC Two has gone for the traditional one-two of play school and the open university. But on ITV, uh, in the morning they've had Mike Smith presumably not that one, showing you how to make a record player on jobs about the house. Apparently a record player from scratch with regular household bits and bobs. <laughs> uh, round about tea time, Kid Jensen has presented Rock On with 45, uh, an obvious uh, competition with the Top of the Pops, with the Detroit Spinners, Sylvia and Zigzag, hosted from the Hard Rock Disco in Manchester. And in Crossroads, a missing wage packet causes grief for Amy Turtle. Oh, Amy. (laughs) Right now, they're halfway through a new episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, where Steve Austin and a pretty teenager who possesses extraordinary ESP powers track down a mole who's leaking laser weapon secrets to the Russians. And there'll be probably lots of slow motion running that you know, to, to make him look like he's running really fast, which I never fucking understood. <laughs> and also when you got the doll, which I'd I'd get for Christmas uh, this year, is is kind of like eagle eye, make you look through the back of his head and it made everything even more further away. It was just fucked up. Yeah, I had one of them. <laughs> yeah, it was insane, wasn't it? And it's, yeah. the one thing about that doll was I was, I got really obsessed about the smell of his trainers. I got quite addicted to them. <laughs> and I got really scared about it. I think this set you up for life as a football casual. Yes. <laughs> I think the slow, Trainer sniffer. The, the, the slow motion thing, Al, was so that kids could do it as well. Like, yes. Um, I, I remember That's doing true. the slow motion run, even at the age of like about two or three, and making those sounds, you know, this, this six million dollar man sounds. What? The, that kind of creaking noise. Yeah, that thing. Um, it was because kids, so kids could do it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Smart bits of marketing by those people. Very good, yeah. Yeah, because you, you just see loads of kids just going really slow down the road, and it's like, <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, I'm being the bionic man. It's TLTP time, so let's hang on in there, baby. The host of this show is Emperor Roscoe. Born in Los Angeles and the son of Hollywood producer Joe Pasternak, Michael Pasternak talked his way into being a DJ on an aircraft carrier based off the coast of Vietnam in the early 60s and encouraged a young Sly Stone into becoming a DJ. In 1964, after various stints on French radio stations, he joined Radio Caroline, hosted the Stax Tour of Europe in 1967, and then joined Radio 1 as one of their original DJs. While at Radio 1, he created the roundtable format, pioneered the concept of the mobile disco, recorded a selection of singles for Trojan Records, and hosted Cracker Jack with Little and Large. By this point in 1975, he started hosting Top of the Pops, is handling the post-junior choice slot on Saturday mornings, and has published a massively comprehensive volume entitled Emperor Roscoe's DJ Book. I've actually downloaded a copy of this, and I must say, if you're looking to be a DJ 42 years ago, (laughs) it's highly recommended. Goes into incredible detail about microphones from 40 years ago. So, Roscoe, what, what do we think about him? Uh, are we familiar with his oeuvre before we watch this? You know what, right? This is not what I thought Emperor Roscoe would look like because um, I remember no. his stint on Radio 1 on Sunday afternoons in the early yeah. 80s. And from his voice, I thought he'd be a guy in a kind of white rhinestone jumpsuit, like a sort of cross between the aforementioned Evil Knievel, um, Elvis Presley and Liberace or something like that. Not this kind of weedy little guy in a mustard polo neck that, that we see on this show. Yes. And in fact, um, even though you gave him that introduction of that, that biography, I actually suspect him of not really being American. But um, having learned oh. uh, a, gen- a generic <laughs> American accent at his local Amdram group, maybe for a, a production of Calamity Jane, uh, per- perfecting perfecting such faux American phrases as howdy, oh, partner, and stuff like that. Slur. Out of all these DJs who were British <laughs> and were feigning a mid-Atlantic accent, Roscoe's the real deal compared to your Ed Stewart's and your all those other people that were on Caroline and Radio London and stuff like that. Well, you got him and David Jensen, yes. haven't you? Him, David Jensen was Canadian, but you know he had that kind of North American exoticism. Um, but you know, and 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 we say this every time. Let's be thankful that Emperor Roscoe is just a prick. He isn't a safeguarding risk. No. He's not a two-pinned mm-hmm. in plug. No. He's not a pipe-to-pipe bushman or a rovoplegic roncock. <laughs> He's just a prick. So bless him for just being a prick. Neil? Well, the thing is with Roscoe, I really don't remember him. And I don't remember him uh, on the show that Pricey mentioned from the early 80s. I don't remember him DJing. I don't actually remember him presenting Top of the Pops that often. But I do remember the name. The reason mm. being that I think he had a stint on Radio Luxembourg. And yes. although we never listened to late Radio Luxembourg, Radio Luxembourg always had a big sort of Pearl and Dean advert before before films uh, in mm. the late 70s. And Emperor Roscoe was mentioned. And of course, yeah, I, I think I developed the same 
mental picture as Pricey did of him. Uh, 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 for me, he, he was a bit more like Boss Hog, actually, at Dukes of Hazard. Yes. <laughs> I had that picture of him. Um, and he's, he's nothing like that. He looks like a kind of Stu Francis knockoff in a way. Um, but, 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 <laughs> I think this is one of the earliest mullet sightings on top of the pops, isn't it? I think you might be right. And, and because because <laughs> of this Radio Luxembourg link, for me, his name is kind of ineluctably linked with, I don't know, Westar Hot Dogs and King Cones and things like yes, that. Yes. It just reminds me of being sat in a cinema. Yes. Um, I need a, similarly... need a curry after the film. <laughs> but I'm similarly kind of vaguely disappointed with his appearance. But mm. yeah, I mean, that's off too for not being a pervert, I guess. Uh, he actually talks about, in his biography, in the in the updated <laughs> chapters, he talks about Jimmy Savile. And uh, the, the two things he basically says about the man is, number one, he didn't know anything. And number two, uh, Emperor Roscoe knew more gangsters than Jimmy Savile claimed to. So that was... That was pretty much it. that's it for Jimmy Savile for this for this episode probably. The, th- the thing I also noticed with Emperor Roscoe's introduction is with the rundown, the music obviously is the same top of the pops music they've been using for a long, long time before that. Yes, and yes, yes. by this time, I do think it's starting to sound tremendously dated. It's kind of starting to sound sixties ish, and, yes. and definitely not seventies ish. So mm. the chart music rundown itself seemed pretty dated at that point. Perhaps hinting at the things that were around the corner after the shit fest that night. Yeah, and, and, and that, that, that music, Whole Lot of Love, would last as the chart countdown music all the way up to 1980. It's amazing it lasted that long, really, isn't it? My opinions of Roscoe is, I'm sure that if I was a 14-year-old, him on Caroline or Big L or whatever would sound absolutely amazing and, oh, my God, it's just like America. But... um Pirate Radio just stank of unwashed cock. It really did. <laughs> so I listen to it now and it's, hey, mummy and daddy and everything's moving and a-grooving and cooking and a-fucking and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, and they're all such fucking Tories as well. I, I think the biggest mistake Tony Benn ever made was was have a go at, at, the, at the Pirates because all these people just ended up having really influential jobs in, in Radio 1. And continue to be mm-hmm. massive Tories, even yeah. though Tony Benn and the BBC have given them these amazingly fucking lucrative jobs where they get to open supermarkets for stupid money and, and you know, they, they get to actually live in a flat in Mayfair instead of on a boat. There's one bit where um, in 1970, just before the general election, where uh, Radio Caroline comes back on the air just to encourage people to vote Conservative in the next election and to, and to vote for free radio. There's a jingle, which I will put on the video playlist, about the the day that they became properly illegal. And the way they go on about it is as if they've landed on the fucking beaches of Normandy to to fight the Germans. It's it's, it's incredible. (laughs) And, you know, that style, because I I do love me old school American radio, and Roscoe's from there, you know. But by 1975, Mm -hmm. on television, it, it, you know, it sounds really dated, even then. He, I mean, he's not made for television, Roscoe. No. Clearly, he seems uncomfortable with the whole kind of experience in a way. Yes, uh, that residual Toryism that you're talking about. I mean, that that stink hung around for a long, long time, didn't it? You, you could really say all the way through the seventies and the eighties, most yeah. DJs you'd felt, you'd feel, would have supported Thatcher in the in the eighties, yeah. um, and probably would have supported Conservative governments in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, people who get landed with really cushy jobs that pay them shitloads of money are kind of cool with free enterprise, aren't they? <laughs> Funnily enough. As was the style of the mid-70s, we go into a chart rundown and a series of stills of the top 30 bands and artists. Highlights include 
the beakiest, most unflattering picture of Barry Manilow ever, <laughs> two pairs of Groucho Marx glasses and moustaches on people's knees, a picture of Bobby Goldsborough that looks like a photo of a cardboard cutout of Bobby Goldsborough in the style <laughs> of those cardboard policemen that shops have nowadays, the Northern Soul tribute group Wiggins Ovation dressed up like Bullseye contestants, Mike Reed in an extremely homoerotic cap and blouse combination, and a very young and unblonde David Van Day in Guys and Dolls. I must say, I do love the photos on the chart rundown. That some of them are just not flattering at all, are they? A lot of the stuff in the countdown is very sort of stereotypically what we think 1975 was like. Uh, lots of middle of the road stuff, you know, Gilbert Becco, Bobby Goldsborough, but also just like loads of amazing soul music. Uh, you just go through the list, Al Green, LaBelle, Barry White, Gloria Gaynor, Moments and Whatnots. So this is the time maybe when um, American soul music properly broke through in the UK. But then again, you know, you've got at least television stars having hits now. Television becoming a big deal. So you've got Telly Savalas and Mike Reed. Mike Reed has got beautiful breath, but Telly Savalas's breath stinks. <laughs> fucks up right from the start and tells us that it's TOTB time and we're to hang in there baby and we go straight into teaching formed in Enschede the Netherlands in 1969 teaching had already recorded six singles and an LP when they participated in the Dutch song for Europe in 1975 Ding-a-Dong originally called Ding-Ding-a-Dong wasn't their own song it had already been chosen as a Dutch owned drink and they had to compete with other artists. So that must have been a really thrilling night on Dutch television. <laughs> a month prior to this episode, they smashed it at the Eurovision Song Contest in Stockholm, beating the UK's entry, Let Me Be the One by the Shadows, into second place. It was the second time a non English group sang a winning entry in English. And of course, we all know who the last one was, ABBA, Waterloo. It's the highest new entry in this week's chart, straight in at number 26. Before you chip in, chaps, I just want to say that my original notes for this read, these people are so European. (laughs) Honestly, if if you want cliched Euro, 70s Euros, these are they. The thing with teaching is that this is what people make fun of, isn't it? When people make fun of Eurovision, this is what they're thinking of, that kind of Eurovision Esperanto, that nonsense language. Because 1969, um, Lulu had won the competition with Boom Bang A Bang. And then 1974, just one year before this, ABBA had won with Waterloo, but they also released Bang A Boomerang. (laughs) Um, So this is very much kind of on the coattails of that. Of course, yeah. The other thing that's really noticeable about teaching here, first of all, we've got to give credit to the guy with his amazing um, leopard print waistcoat and flares combo. And also the fact that he looks a bit like Richard Stilgo, which is fair enough, because in the 70s, I think most adult males looked like Richard Stilgo. And um, the woman, the singer, um, reminds me weirdly (laughs) of Mrs. McCluskey from Grange Hill. Doesn't she just? So it's kind of unholy Stilgo-McCluskey fusion. Unholy... Still go McCluskey Fusion being a great band, by the way. I recommend you still go and see. Good singer Getty Caspers wears a surprisingly tasteful baggy peach coat and matching scarf, um, and a band of dressed like people on their way to a seventies night. <laughs> there's you know, a, there's, like, th- yeah, there's a real creme brulee look 
to a lot of the band. I, I concur <laughs> about the, I mean, magnificent leopard print that the, the bass player's wearing. Um, and the belt buckle. Did you see the belt buckle? It's just this big hoop. <laughs> it's like someone's just won him on the hoopla. <laughs> but I think you can also, uh, uh, maybe I'm imagining it, but you can sort of palpably see the ABBA effect in a way, I think, um, and, and hear it in the music yes. as well. I was intrigued by the fact that this song, um, I think one of its writers is a guy called Eddie Owens, who, who Rush released that song in 77, I Remember Elvis Presley, straight after um, Elvis died. It's the same guy who wrote this one. Oh, yeah. Um, what, Danny Mirror? Yeah, yeah, it's done by Danny Mirror, but Eddie Owens, who's a, who's a Dutch Dutch, oh. um, Dutch musician and record producer, he was responsible for this song, and also, yeah, that I Remember wow. Elvis Presley. How um, are you not going to remember Elvis Presley in 1977? He's only just died. Yes. <laughs> It's like I remember last week. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like being back at the old people's home. I think people were just impressed by the responsiveness of it. I guess yeah. it's a quick pop record in response to a ma- massive event. Mm. Like that. Um, there's no great shakes with this song, though. Really, I, if you ask me now to sing you any of it, I couldn't. Uh, it's, it's kind of in one ear and out the other. Yeah. But I think ABBA, there is a slight ABBA effect, I think, in the production. Yeah, I mean, ABBA's kind of pointed the way, but, but a Eurovision win is still not a guarantee for chart success. Eurovision, I don't think computed to me at that age. Eurovision started kicking in in importance to me. Um, and I have to say, sorry about this, Books Fizz. Books Fizz reanimated my interest in Eurovision, I think. It wasn't something that was on the telly. Um, every year in our house. Right. But everyone knew Books Fizz were going to win, um, yeah. I think, in 1980, I think it was when they won. 81. Um, uh, yeah, um, everyone knew they were going to win and consequently that built quite a lot of national excitement. These, uh, uh, I- I'm sure I'm not the only one in Britain for whom the Eurovision, these were kind of not lean years, but um, I don't think it, 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 Eurovision gained as much attention as it did after ABBA for a while until Books Fizz came along. I could be what wrong. Does Eurovision mean to you, Simon? Well, you know what? Um, I think the first Eurovision winner I was aware of was the following year, Brotherhood of Man. Um, I I got really into ABBA um, in the late seventies, yeah. but I I think I only um, sort of heard Waterloo in retrospect. So Brotherhood of Man was the first one I remember, but I don't even think I watched the show. I just remember them being on mm. Top of the Pops with their slightly mm. creepy song. But um, from from then on, I did watch it, um, and I remember it was Israel won it two years in a row, didn't they? It was. Um, that's it was Abani B and Hallelujah. Um, and then, yes. yeah, I was quite an avid follower of it from, from then on. Eurovision was quite a big deal to me, uh, simply because it was one of the few Saturday nights that I was allowed to stay up until 11 o'clock. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty unremarkable Eurovision song contest in 1975. The only controversy was that the Portuguese entry was banned from appearing on stage in his military uniform and his rifle. So, <laughs> so here we go. I mean, I, I noticed the drummer, um, he's kind of like holding his drumsticks as if he's tossing a salad. <laughs> the drummer's amazing, actually. The drummer's really watchable. He looks like a, a bit like a sort of a chimpanzee using cutlery. You're not quite sure what to do with it. Yes. It's extraordinary. Yes. I've got to say that the kids are getting down, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, you look at it and it just looks like, you know, there's just loads of people there. But then right at the end, the camera's pulled right back and there's only a few of them. And it, and, it, and it's a bit like Theresa May at a campaign rally. 
You know, as soon as you pull back, there's not <laughs> there's not that many people there at all. You get that a lot in this episode. Sudden pulls pullbacks, and it's like the stage is kind of floating in space. There's just a load of big black space around them. There's ob- there's lots of odd, strange moments in this episode where suddenly loud applause occurs with nobody actually doing it and things like that. I'm choosing to see it as a harbinger of Brexit. <laughs> you know, our 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 lovely our lovely European friends there abandoned by the British audience. <laughs> So, Dinger Dong went up to number 18 the following week and got as high as number 13. It was their only UK hit, but it got to number one in Norway and Switzerland and even got into the top 30 of the US Easy Listening chart. Amazingly, it only got to number three in Holland. God, those Dutch are so hard to please, aren't they? Going for sound number eight, Peter Shelley and Love Me, Love My Dog. And by the way, look out for that Wooly Wooly. I'll tell you, he's something else. His name is King, and he loves to chase pussycats. Freedom is a dusty road. Roscoe failed to introduce teaching, he refuses to even acknowledge them afterwards, going straight into introducing Peter Shelley, advising the viewer to look out for that woolly woolly. I'll tell you, he's something else. His name is King and he loves to chase pussycats. In Roscoe's mind and in Top of the Pops' mind, one British dog is worth more than an entire Dutch band. A lot of the things Roscoe says in this episode don't make any sense. And I, and I, I appreciate that he's coming from that 60s uh, pirate radio thing. But yeah. but that's what makes him so distinctly odd on top of the Yeah, box, he's trying to in, fill in dead air, the and there's no need for it. And also, he's, he's made a pussy joke, but kind of lost confidence in it at the last minute. <laughs> yes. And just, he just kind of pulled back from the pussy at the last yeah, minute. he did. He did. <laughs> So, a former song plugger and talent scout in the 60s who discovered 10 years after Amen Corner and King Crimson, Peter Shelley became an independent writer and producer working with Marty Wilde and the band Hard Horse. What a fucking band name that is. That is a brilliant name. You'd go, you'd have a t-shirt with Hard Horse on it, wouldn't you, Simon? With a- I think I saw them supporting Man to Man featuring Man Parish yes. in 1985, actually. <laughs> Tips of my G-string made my living. <laughs> After co-founding Magnet Records in 1973, he wrote, produced and sang My Kooka Chew and performed it on Liftoff with A-Shea under the name of Alvin Stardust, but then decided he wasn't up for doing it and contracted it out to Shane Fenton, which we discussed in chart music number three. After writing a string of top ten hits for Alvin in 74, he got to number four in his own right in September of 1974 with G-Baby, and this is the follow-up, and it's up from number 11 to number 8. Simon, you know, we absolutely lavish praise on uh, Mike Kukachu by Alvin Stardust in a, in, a previous, uh, in a previous incarnation of chart music. Do you think that he's kind of regretting his decision not to be Alvin Stardust and not to, you know, swan around in a cat suit and point at people, nice gloves and everything? He must be gutted. He's like the Stuart Sutcliffe or the Pete Best of glam, isn't he? Yeah, he is, um, of his own volition as well. Yeah, yeah. So he's only got himself to blame. Mm. Um, I mean, he's given it his best shot here, but his his face is in soft focus. This is a weird thing about it. And so mm. is his voice. From yes. the very first note, it's got this kind of dreamy, echoey quality to his voice. Yeah. And um, 
And it has to be said that this song lacks the the edge of some of his later work, like Oh Shit, Homo Sapien and Orgasm Addict. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about the low-hanging fruit. I went there. Um, yeah, good luck. And, uh, One of um, us had two. One of us yeah, had yeah. two. And, uh, and he's wearing a T-shirt with a dog superimposed yeah. on a circular Union Jack. Yes. Um, which, which may have seemed harmless at the time, but nowadays makes him look like he ought to be marching through a town centre shouting and pointing at a small woman in a hijab. Yes. Yeah, but the thing is, those kind of T-shirts, they usually have bulldogs on them, don't they? Yeah, not a Dulux dog, yeah, to be Perhaps fair. Perhaps he's a really friendly and cuddly racist. Yeah, yeah, maybe he is. <laughs> There's something a bit creepy, I think, about luring women towards him with the cute dog. It's yes. kind of only one step shy of a bag of jelly babies. And the other yes. thing I love about it is the dog's not having it. There's a brilliant moment yes. where he's had he's had enough of being fussed by these women, and he shakes his yeah. head like "get off," you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Peter in double <laughs> denim and a t-shirt of an old English sheep dog on a Union Jack, which I think says "Make a brighter Britain" or something. All right. I think that's. I thought it. I thought it might have been a T-shirt for Digby, the biggest dog in the world. Right, that came out a couple of years ago, a couple of years before. And I think that's the reason why Roscoe said that the dog's name's King, as opposed to the Dulux dog. I think BBC would be (laughs) extremely worried about that. Oh yeah. Well, well, the 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 intention, obviously, with any top of the pop performance, is that we focus on the performer. But I, I really ended up just watching um, the girls who were surrounding. Oh him yes, during this because they have that lovely. I think Price is referred to it a lot in 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 in, in other chart music podcasts um, about that that innocence towards the camera and that and that kind of they look at the camera with the same kind of curiosity that an uh, an undiscovered tribe in the amazon would look yes. at the camera <laughs> they they're, they're kind of not perplexed by it as such but they're always looking for where it is and what's going on and and it's really really touching in a way that as Pricey's mentioned today's sort of camera confident audience members um couldn't get um, the thing that I struck me immediately watching this song is the first thing I said is a habit of my family, actually. Right. Actually, my sister. Sorry to go on about my sister. No. But um, whenever we watch old films and there's an animal on it, she'll say, that dog's dead now. Yes. Um, <laughs> that horse is dead now. That, you know, terrible, that, that cat's it? dead now. I always think that about that cow on the Pink Floyd album. First of all, that several yeah. people ate that cow, but also plenty of people are wearing that cow on the Pink Floyd album now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that dog's dead now. Um, There's no interaction, though, really, between him and the girls that surround him. And and I think as as time goes on through the performance, he's getting increasingly annoyed with them, um, I think, and increasingly not committed to the performance, as as Pricey mentioned. They're Um, sucking on lollipops, and there'll be a reason for that, as we'll discover later on. They're mithering the dog, and, you know, by the end of it, they're talking amongst themselves. They, they, they get bored with the fucking camera and the song as well. But one of them, who looks the dead spit of CITV character from the 80s, Marmalade Atkins, is actually miming along with yeah, them. Did yeah, yeah, I did notice that? that. I did notice that. She's sometimes getting the words wrong. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the overall impression you get is of a man at a bus stop with his dog and the local reform school has turned out and he's just <laughs> sitting there, you know, singing to himself, uh, hoping that, you know, someone doesn't say the wrong thing or touch the wrong part of the dog and it all kicks off. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that the, 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 one of the girls that sets the dog off has got a six million dollar man jumper? Awesome. Knitted for her, or do you reckon a bit of merchandise? It looks, it looks like she got it from the market. Some enterprising barra boy has, has put out a load of Steve Austin knitwear. The the, the greatest <laughs> promotional jumper, and it was a jumper I ever saw. It wasn't really promotional. It was a mate of mine in the eighties. 
He, he couldn't afford a Metallica t-shirt, so his nan knitted him a, a Metallica jumper. No! <laughs> Brilliant. With the, with the Rider Lightning flash on it and, and, and everything. And, it, you know, he proudly wore it. That's off to him. It's a good bit of kit, that. Wow. Yeah. Well, but that's the kind of thing they'd be selling now, wouldn't they, at Christmas? I mean, that, that, that Slayer Christmas jumper. I don't know what to think about that. There was a Slayer Christmas jumper. Yes. Fuck that. Fuck that. This is, that's yeah. Slayer, man. No. <laughs> yeah. They're Satanists, for Christ's sake. Yeah, Satanists get code in winter, though. Yeah, you know true. when the darkness had that Christmas hit, Christmas time, don't let the bells end. Um, and the guitarist, Dan yeah. Hawkins, mm, had this yeah. tradition that he always wore a Thin Lizzy t-shirt on stage. And in the video, um, they give him uh, a Christmas jumper. He opens it, and it's just like a normal Christmas jumper. And I thought, oh, come on, for fuck's sake, that's an open goal. What you know? Clearly, the thing yeah. is, he's meant to rip yeah, it yeah. open, and it's a knitted Thin Lizzy jumper. But no, they missed it. <laughs> yeah. That's where it's, it's where it started to go wrong from, wasn't it? So I mean, the, the, this this actual song. I mean, what's what's it about? It, it <laughs> it's a fucking. T- I mean, it's one of those ones you get a lot with, with with any episode of Top of the Pops. I suspect from any year in its history, it's one of those. Mm. Why did anyone fucking buy this record? Um, yeah. Records. Basically, he's saying he can't form a relationship, uh, really, because he's too attached to his dog. And yeah. I'd love to know what became of him in later years. You know, there's the kind of stereotype of the mad cat lady. Yeah. And I'd love to imagine that Peter Shelley, you know, um, spent the last few decades in a cottage somewhere, surrounded by about a dozen Dulux dogs. Yeah, but with wearing jumpers knitted out of dog hair. <laughs> I mean, the song's basically saying, look, if you want to have a relationship with me, you've got to put up with the smell of dog shit. <laughs> and and getting ears all over you, but the one thing I don't understand is that he's he's it's one of them that he's he's on the highway and he keeps moving on, which always smacks to me of being completely uh, unable to form a relationship. Anyway, it's all right when a dog sings that. When a dog sings yeah. that, like the littlest exactly. hobo, yeah, I exactly, can go yeah. with that. The littlest hobo is the dog, and he's yeah, yeah, the littlest hobo. He's on the road. He's running from town to town, having adventures. Yeah. But the idea that Peter Shelley is this kind of wild spirit, and that you know uh, his dog means more to him than any woman ever could, and he's yeah. just like moving from town to town. Have, have you seen him? He looks like he, he hasn't been the town centre and back. <laughs> Never mind, you know, going going over to Zeebrugger or something. Uh, yeah, and the idea of him g- taking the Skyway on the California Highway and shit. So, so, so you're actually going abroad. Do you not realise quarantine laws? <laughs> you know, your dog's going to have to be fucking in a, in a cage for six months, you bastard. Well, there's a deeper thing. I mean, that bloke's life is fundamentally one of disappointment, isn't it? Because he made that yeah. cowardly decision not to be Alvin Stardust. And, yes. and <laughs> yeah. we've all made that coward decision not to be able to start us though. But I bet I bet he regretted that massively. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Do you think he ever tried on a glove that was just lying? No, it would, no, it would have been too it would have been too heartbreaking for him because because that decision speaks of cowardice. And that cowardice yes. will have haunted him for the rest of the day the rest of his days, I suspect. Yeah. I mean this is essentially BJ and the Bear, but with a less interesting <laughs> animal, isn't it? This song. Oh man, I haven't heard BJ in the bear for a long time. <laughs> so the song jumped up to number three. The following <gasps> number three. It's highest position, and it would be the last time we saw him in the charts. Uh, he dropped out of the music business not long after this and devised the comic strip Robot Man, which mutated into something called Monte. Anyone? No. No, no, no absolutely yeah, it's, not. It's an American thing. Yeah. Woof! 
Woof, woof, woof. Love me, love my dog from Peter Shelley. And doing uh, currently at number eight. Let's go for the number two sound right now. From dogs to foxes, animals in music. The sweet, and we're going up where the air is rare. Roscoe waits ages for his cue. We actually see Peter Shelley in the background grabbing the dog by the collar and getting the fuck out of there. He, didn't, he wasn't <laughs> happy at all, was he? Ros- Roscoe strangely draws a link between dogs and foxes and points out that we're going up where the air is rare and introduces Fox on the Run by Sweet. Formed in London in 1968, The Sweet Shop were a popular band on the London pub circuit and were approached by an actor-singer looking to become their manager. Do we know who that was? Paul Nicholas. Yes, it was Paul Nicholas. He gets mentioned every fucking episode, doesn't he? After a spell as a bubblegum band in the early 70s, they jumped onto the bandwagon or, in my opinion, dragged the glam bandwagon to new heights and had six top five hits on the bounce. At the end of 74, their hot streak ended with Turn It Down failing to break the top 40. And this is a follow-up, and it's jumped up from number five to number two. They're back. I just think the suite are absolutely amazing. I think they're one of the greatest bands who ever lived. And everyone, I mean, everyone knows the story with the suite. You know, they're originally the serious, proper rock band, as you say, called Sweet mm. Shop. And, and the narrative you usually hear is that they kind of sold their souls to Chin and Chapman for hits. But, you know, and, and that they personally always resented it. And they, they stuck their serious, proper rock songs on their B-sides. And, and, and then eventually, you know, when nobody cared anymore, they became a, a serious, proper rock band. But the, mm. the kids weren't interested in that. And I think the kids had it right because mm. at their best... They literally hit a sweet spot of pop that rocks and rock that popped. That run they had of five top five singles from Wigwam Bam to Teenage Rampage, and that's taking in Blockbuster, Hellraiser, and Ballroom Blitz. Those five in a row, um, and they all made the top five. Um, that stands up alongside anyone else you care to mention. You could pick an equivalent five from T Rex or David Bowie, it doesn't matter. The Sweets Five stands up just as well. Yeah. And uh, and th- this track, of course, it's 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 late period though, um, and they've they mm. they've got rid of the makeup. Uh, Brian Connolly's lost the silver Flash Gordon cuffs, and Steve Priest now has got a clue what to do. Um, he's yes. he's he's no longer a gay Nazi. Um, I've got to say, Steve <laughs> Steve Priest is one of my ultimate cult heroes of pop, and um, I I really want to read his autobiography, which is brilliantly titled are you ready steve but it's something mad it's something like 300 quid a copy it's something insane if you look for a copy of it online it's really expensive but anyway fox on the run fox on the run is pop hawkwind it's silver machine for looking readers and and even right. and, and even though they're not glam anymore this is glam i think i think it's got that yes. it's got that edge of hysteria uh, it's yeah. got the those kind of uh, and that that's because of the kind of helium harmonies they got going on and that that kind of hysteria and those helium harmonies that to me is as much um, as much as the kind of hooligan drumming and and the stonesy guitarist that's the essence of glam that kind of high pitched you know it's this hysteria pitched vocal yeah I, I completely concur with Simon about the, that runner singles it does stand up to the I mean similar runner singles say if you're talking T-Rex you know from 20th century well 20th century boy backwards actually um, 
It's a stunning run of singles. By now, of course, by Fox on the Run. Fox on the Run isn't a Chin and Chapman song. It's one of their own. and um, It's the first one that they wrote. Yeah. It's the first single written by the band. And it was actually on the album, I think, the year before. But it's a completely different yes. version. The album version is, as Pricey says, a sort of proper grown-up rock song, if you like. I mean, it rocks, mm. don't get me wrong. But it, but there's none of the synths. There's none of those textures or the helium yeah. harmonies that Simon was referring to. I definitely prefer um, this single version. Um, Me too. Uh, uh, to, to the album version. And um, yeah, I mean, still a stunning record. And don't forget that we're going to follow this up later on this year with Action, um, which is another fucking mm. amazing record. So um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the high points of this episode, I would say. One of the things that I was intrigued to find was because a lot of people have covered that song. Um, I was intrigued to listen to the version by. Uh, Scorpions mit Cindy Lauper. No, not with Cindy Lauper. Yes. <laughs> but um, Scorpions did a cover of it in, in 75. They did a German cover of it called Fuchsgeveron, um, which is actually nice. about a fox. Um, it's not about groupies or anything. It's actually about fox hunting. <laughs> they changed the lyrics. They also did a cover of Action, actually, I think on the B side of that. Um, and it's a really fucking good version. Don't like the Scorpions much, but um, but it's a really good version. <laughs> proving, that it, proving that it's just a brilliant, brilliant song. Oh fuck! Is that winds Someone of change? Is that winds of change? Oh right, <laughs> yes. Up <laughs> oh, there, we threw the barricades. That song. I mean, I hated the fact that glam had disappeared by 1975 because I fucking loved it. And you know, the Sweet were one of my absolute favourite bands then, and you know, probably my absolute favourite band. And so when they came back, I was very, very pleased about it. And I've, I've got to say, this song... I mean, is there is there much of a progression going on here? Because we do... No, like I say, if you take this single on its own merits, it could have slotted right in there with all the glam singles, I reckon. Yes. Why did... Al, as a, as a fan of glam, why did glam go? Why did it go? Why did it go? Why did it not stop as such, but why did that stop happening? Was it just because Bowie moved no. on or T-Rex moved on or, or, or what? I have, I have no idea, mate. Um, it, I mean, to me, as a kid, you know, and I'm talking about being six years old here, it was crunchy guitars, opportunities to punch the air, um, people screaming like banshees, ridiculous clothes. I mean, that, everything. That, it, it was made. For, for, for six-year-old boys, that music. But, but that's... You know, it's the kind of music that you just want to skid and fuck up your, the knees of your flares or across a, you know, a wedding reception floor. And perhaps that's what we're seeing in 75 is a replacement of that kind of young hysteria. I think hysteria is absolutely the right word to use yes. about this record. And there yes. are a lot of sweet records. A replacement of that kind of young hysteria with just yet a bit more, a, a sort of grown-up attitude in a sense, oh. which is anathema to good pop music. Um, yeah. Um, and and it's it's a real shame, I think. Yeah, I mean, and we're seeing a lot of the change in the in, in what they're wearing. Brian Connolly is in this tight powder blue jumpsuit, and uh, I, I sent you a photo of this earlier. It's clearly based on uh, Helmut Schön, manager of West Germany in the nineteen seventy four World Cup. His tracksuit it looks just it like does, it, it does. but but cut a little bit more. Helmut he does Schoen, look like man, a right helmet. Right. I'll say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's got he's got helmet haircut anyway, but helmet shirt, um, you know, inspired hip hop. Adidas tracksuits, Kangol caps. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And as you said, Simon, Steve Priest has stopped being camp, but now he looks absolutely fucking satanic. He does bare chest yeah. and waistcoat. Yeah. 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 He looks like Dim out of Clockwork. Yes, Boring. that's exactly what he is. Yeah. And of course, Andy Scott, we see him fiddling about on a synth, but you know. After a few seconds, he just gets bored of it and starts playing air synth. <laughs> you know, the d- disregard for equipment. 
you know, there's no, there's no, oh, look at us being serious musicians playing this. I mean, they do, you know, we are being told that they wanted to be serious at this time, but there was still an element of playfulness in that band. Yeah, there's no fake guitar leads plugged in or anything like that. But one of the things you spotted, Al, I think, um, early on in that performance... Uh, yes, that lad who's he's, yes, right at the beginning. Yeah, there's a lad. He, he's kind. He basically goes up to one of the girls. I think he was with the with Peter Shelley for the dog song, and whispers yes. something in her ear. She shakes her head, and he, he goes away, kind of yeah. shrugging his shoulders, clearly chancing his arm in a similar way. It really reminded me of was Mickey Pierce trying to ask Cassandra out in um, in yes. any calls. Yes, <laughs> you get the feeling that he probably said thanks a lot um, before he walked yeah. off. But that's a not. He had a go, but it's a, you don't you. You don't do that to a girl when the sweet's on. It's just that's not the song, no. mate. Wait for something a bit, you know. You should have gone. You should have gone with a dog tune. The other thing with the sweet is, I would have absolutely loved to see them live at their peak because if yes. if you go on YouTube, there, there is actually a gig um, from I think about 1974, and it is one of the most punk rock things I've ever seen. Obviously, it's two years pre-punk, and it's the perfect kind of marriage of the pop songs that you know, they had in the charts and their desire mm. to actually rock. Um, so for example, when they're playing Hellraiser, which I think is my favorite sweet mm. single, yeah. the most exciting single they ever did that, you know, I think Brian Connolly, if I remember rightly, sort of trashing the microphone and there might be some guitar smashing going on and all of that kind of stuff. It's incredible. And I, I would absolutely yeah. love to have seen them around that time. And Brian Connolly can really fucking handle a mic stand, Connie. During the middle eight, where he just twizzles it and just plonks it down so precisely. <laughs> but again, he's I, I I I feel that he's he's standing really awkwardly because and I'm 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 thinking it's because of his platforms. I mean, we're going to see a lot of examples of grown men having great difficulty standing up on platforms. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's an honourable tradition. <laughs> it's an honourable tradition, but it's, got, it's something you've got to carry off. Yeah, Simon, I've got to say, have you ever you ever tried to? Um, you know, you and platforms have they ever got together? This is me we're talking about here, right? Yes. <laughs> I can't believe I can't believe you're even asking me this question. Um, yeah, uh, basically, how, how yes, high? I have. Um, and uh, oh, very high, basically, of sort of pint glass height. You know, um, in fact, um, I inherited an amazing pair of uh, uh, silver and black platform boots from my dad, uh, which I do wear from time to time. And the thing about them is, and this, wow. this, this says a lot about my dad, actually, they're a pair of silver yes. platform boots, but with a blood stain on the toe. Because um, even what? though even though he got involved with Ponzi fashions, he was also a hard bastard. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's very So sweet, I wear them with actually. a weird kind of pride. I remember one time I was, uh, my dad came back from the pub one night and he looked at me and he started looking at my feet and he was kind of like thinking to himself and nodding to himself. And he says, oh, you wait there. I'll be, I'll be down in a minute. Came down after five minutes with a shoebox. Opened it up and it's a pair of brogues. And it must have been about three, three inch platform <laughs> sole. And he said, and I said, dad, what? what? And he says, there you go. They're, they'll fit you now. They're your size. And I said, Dad, it's 1983. I'm not wearing these fuckers. He got them. He bought them in a pub in 1974, thinking, oh, these will fit our one day. And it's like, Dad, Dad you're not... Do you, do you not wear how much of a fucking kicking for the rest of my life I would get if I went out in these? And of course, I wish I had them. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, totally. They would have been fucking amazing. And of course, this is this is from someone who who would go to London and spend fucking forty quid on a pair of black and white brogues that Paul Weller had, but they didn't have my size when I went down there. But I still bought a pair that were two sizes too tight, 
and just basically walked around town like a fucking Chinese ballerina. Milan to your Carnaby Street, right? Yeah. Yeah, I feel your pain, brother. Yeah. Oh, man. The frustrating thing is, obviously, after this year for Sweet, I think it kind of went downhill, really, and and, then the the hits dried up. And it's just just sort of another example of that frustrating phenomenon of bands getting tired of success. Yeah. and, and, And... departing for what makes them successful this is a great song i think action that comes later that year is a great song but but how how great would they have been had they stayed with chin and chapman and perhaps got some of the hits that they were writing for other people um in in the sweet roster i think they could have not i wouldn't say milked it but they would have continued to be a hit machine i think for several years afterwards if they'd have stuck with what made them successful which was the mix between them being a fucking amazing band yeah. uh, the live videos that i've seen i mean i know it's it's an old cliche that oh, they're clearly rehearsed or they're tight but they're fucking razor sharp from years of playing together mm. it's the combination of that with Chin and Chapman songwriting, I think made for such an, a sort of intoxicating thing. And yep. once they just became another band, great band, don't get me wrong, but but the hits dried up. Yeah. One thing that's almost been written out of history, actually, about, about the suite is that in the early 80s, um, when the hits had totally dried up, they weirdly became um, aligned with the goth scene. Um, really? What, what happened was they, yeah, what happened was they started touring around student unions right, right. around the country and stuff like that. And um, probably still, um, you know, Maybe they they dug out the uh, the old Nazi uniforms and the makeup and the glitter um, because that's what audiences um, that's what audiences expected of them, and uh, yeah, they had had this kind of quite um, devoted following for a couple of years of Batcave kids wow. essentially, and I would have loved to see them in yeah, that okay. era. That would have been but incredible. The, the, yeah. the sweet sound and the sweet promise that's never been recovered by any other band since. Uh, a completely completely and utterly unique and standalone. Yeah. So the song stayed at number two the following week and got no further. The follow-up, Action, got to number 15 in July of 1975, and they'd have two more hits before splitting up in early 1979 before reforming and reforming and splitting and reforming and, and all that kind of stuff. The song got to number five in America and has been covered by Scorpions, Kath and Kel in an episode of Kath and Kim, and more recently by Chris Needham as a tribute tribute to his beloved Leicester City. I've got to say now, I heard for, actually heard from Chris the other day. He's not been well. He's been in hospital oh, no. having his gallbladder removed. Oh, so Chalk Music wishes him a solid rocker and recovery like a killing machine. Get well soon, Chris. Yeah, get well soon, Chris. on the run one time from Sweet, that's number two. Will they topple the Bay City Rollers from that number one spot next week? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. But let's look at uh, something new for you right now. Some winners. Three winners. About three degrees. Take good care of yourself. Roscoe, sat at a keyboard, advises us that we'll have to stay tuned to BBC One for a full seven days if we want to find out if Fox on the Run is going to be next week's number one. Fucking hell, Roscoe. Save it. Energy crisis. And then he introduces the three degrees. We've already covered the three degrees. Both of us, I believe it was. Yeah, all three of us did in chart music number four. Uh, But this is a follow-up to Get Your Love Back, which only got to number 34 in November of 1974 after they scored a number one in August of that year with When Will I See You Again. They're in the UK on a tour where they'll record a live LP in Leicester. And this is a new entry at number 40. Live LP at Leicester. Good Lord. I, I do actually have, because you said probably what I've anything to say about them, I do actually have a couple of things to say about Three Degrees. Please um, do. Please do. Just um, visually, 
there's something um, about them which echoes the Motown Charm School. Obviously, they're yes, they're from they're, they're, they're sort of Philly acts, but it sort of tells you the way that Philly learned from Motown. Um, the way they dress, the way they move, is kind of this aspirational way that they're moving. Um, the dancing, yeah. it's all in the shoulders. It's a sort of hunched shoulder dance. It's the dresses they wear, isn't it? There's no straps on them, mate. Yeah. You can't, everything's got to be in the shoulders or, you know, it'll be tits out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way they move, it reminds me of, of Bev, played by um, Alison Steadman in Abigail's Party. Um, yes. It's that that kind yes. of, it's all in the shoulders. Definitely. And, you know, it's it's all about, it's all about <laughs> that, that kind of charm school mentality. And, of course, they did charm their way as we've learned in previous episodes into the very upper echelons of the british establishment prince charles blah 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 but i've, I've got i've got this theory totally, about the three yes. degrees which basically yes. um if philly philadelphia soul was a missing link between motown and disco you know basically it was then that means the three degrees mm-hmm. of this missing link between the supremes and sister sledge you couldn't have just gone straight from supremes to sister sledge you had to have this nice. this stage of evolution of the three no. degrees first and i i don't particularly care for yeah. them myself I, you know i i think year of decisions a bit of a chew but apart from that i've got very little time for them but they they had yeah. their function and i think that was it this song's not a great one um it's, it's a bit pious take good care of yourself i mean yeah. It, it, it's like your mum, isn't it? Well, it, it, it reminds me of a discussion I've recently about the correct... Uh, if my mum was three black women, this is what it'd be like. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of a discussion I had a few days ago with somebody about um, how to sign off on emails. Because I say regards, um, yeah. but apparently what's de rigueur now is is take care, uh, which, I, which I'm not too sure about at the end of emails. This performance by the three degrees, yeah, um, yeah the song's not good enough. It needs a stronger concept. It needs a stronger sense of persona coming from them. What it actually reminded me of, do you remember they're in the French Connection, the Three Degrees? Yeah. They're singing a terrible song about everyone going to the moon um, in that film. And it reminded (laughs) me of that performance because they're wearing nearly identical costumes, even though this was like four years earlier. Um, What I also noticed in this performance a lot is, again, people looking over their shoulder at the monitors Mm. and looking at the big screens um, in a way that perhaps slipped out of Top of the Pops later on. The mechanics of making a TV show is still miraculous to most of the audience. And um, most of the audience are not looking at the three degrees. They're looking at themselves on big screens and kind of dumbfounded by it all. Yeah, I mean, the idea of yourself being on telly in the 70s would have been mind-blowing. Absolutely. Now you walk into a shop, you see yourself. You walk past a branch of Radio Rentals or Rediffusion in the 70s, and some of them would have like um, a very primitive yeah, sort of yeah, home yeah. home camera pointing out mm. at you through the glass, and then you would see yourself on the screen. And people would stand there for hours. It's like sort of hopping back and forth from foot to foot. Look, it's me on a telly, you know, so yeah, there's a little like, bit of that. And also yeah. when, they had, when they had security cameras in supermarkets, when they first started off, you know, yeah, you know, to, to, to stop you from shoplifting. But it's like, oh my God, you, you, have you gone to Grandways? They've got cameras that you can see yourself and they've got doors that open by it. themselves. <laughs> and the one thing I'm taking away from this performance is this is chicken in a basket soul. But it's good chicken. It's not Findus. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's quality. Yeah, it's very Pebble Mill. It's very end of the pier. Um, you know, there. You know, people say the Supremes are too polished, but I really think the Three Degrees were too polished for my tastes. But yeah, yeah you know, I mean, it's it's professional enough. It just doesn't really move me. There, there is that thing with this episode, and perhaps this is something about '75 and why things did have to change. That you do get the feeling that really this episode of Top of the Pops is interchangeable with Summertime Special or is interchangeable yes, with, with, yeah. with, you know, any other entertainment show that was on at that time. It's kind of interchangeable. Yeah. It wasn't. 
you know, young people's pop music. And perhaps that yeah. is what had to change. Well, as, as we've learned earlier, Roscoe plied his trade with Little and Large on Crackerjack. So, um, <laughs> you know, they, they just thought, oh, well, yeah, that, that's it. He, he can do it. There is something about Roscoe um, at the beginning of this as well. You know, he sat at that piano. I think yeah. I think by then, the uh, directors of the show had realised he was pretty awful um, and, and just wanted him to do something. He has real difficulty making eye contact with the camera, um, perhaps yeah. revealing, you know, his radio pedigree as opposed to his television pedigree, but he can't look the camera really dead in yeah. the eye. So the single will rise up to number 22 the following week and peak at number 9. The follow-up, Long Lost Lover, would only get to number 40 and it wouldn't be until the late 70s when they linked up with Giorgio Moroder before they became a regular chart fixture again. Very, very nice indeed. Take good care of yourself. It's something new. I hope you can hear me all right. I can hear me. Hey, let's move things on right now. I'd like you to take a number one record, put it together with a lollipop, Use a bit of imagination and you have a hit record. Ying and Yang. Okay, right in here, sweetheart. Now look, this is nothing to worry about, right? It's just a rehearsal. A rehearsal. You got it, Theo? Don't upset me out. <laughs> Roscoe, still at the keyboard, is surrounded by three young ladies in t-shirts that say, I am a Yin and Yang fan. And have lollipops in their gobs. I mean, and this is the first time that 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 Roscoe's been allowed to to, to mix with girls. It's almost as if okay, we've, we're about four songs in. Uh, we think he's not going to eat them. So who are Yin and Yan? They're two voiceover artists called Chris Sanford and Bill Mitchell. Chris Sanford was an actor best known for playing the character Walter Potts in Coronation Street in 1963. He was a young window cleaner who was discovered by a talent scout, changed his name to Brett Falcon and led a band called the Brainwashers. Sadly, a year later, he was spotted waiting on tables in a Soho coffee bar. But in 2011, it was mentioned that he'd become big in Yugoslavia. And the song he performed on Coronation Street, Not Too Little, Not Too Much, got to number 17 in the charts in December of 1963. Bill Mitchell, on the other hand, was a Canadian best known for being the gravelly voice of Denham, Carlsberg and a million other adverts who had been a merchant seaman, a bouncer in a brothel in Genoa and a drinking partner of Robert Powell and Tom Baker in Soho while they were waiting for voiceover jobs. <laughs> Fucking hell, wouldn't you like a drink with them three? That's a life lived. And the same the, the, the same voice, I think, that was just on every cinema trailer back then as well, the motion picture event of the, of the yes, summer. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, what, a, what a fucking nothing yeah. song, though. I mean, The other pop connection with that is that the denim thing with um, the woman's hand that goes in the denim shirt with the, the long nails. That hand belonged to the mother of Mickey Berenyi from Lush. No! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking yeah. hell. I love doing this podcast. Mickey's mum was a hand model, so there we go. There's pop connect- connections Good everywhere. Wow. Good Lord. They're doing a piss take of Telis Avalis' version of If, the song recorded by Bread in 1971, that had been a number one for Kojak only last month and is still in the charts at number 18. And this version is up from number 37 to number 25. It's the first comedy record of the of the episode. And comedy records are notoriously hard to do on Top of the Pops, I think. How do they play this one? I've got no memory of this whatsoever, you know. But yeah, it's it's a piss take, and it's a vaguely homophobic yeah. one, I've got to say, um, of um, of Telly Savalas. And that's how huge Kojak was at the time. It's kind of a bit mind-boggling, but um, you could do a... Cr- 
you could do a crap parody of Kojak and still reach the top thir- 30. Mm. Um, well, the fact, on, that, on the fact whole, that Kojak got to number one. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, on, on the whole, I do quite enjoy these weird novelty records yeah. that turn up on the old Top of the Pops. My, my personal favourite is um, Loving You Has Made Me Bananas by Guy yes. Marks. But but this one, frankly, can sod off. You know who loves your baby, not me. <laughs> so they've um, they've gone for the uh, they've wisely gone to for the doing it doing everything in silhouette. Uh, they're they're basically doing everything in silhouette, which is you know pretty pretty wise because it avoids miming problems. Because miming to stuff like this is is next to impossible, and you look even more of a knob than mm-hmm. you you know. Then you will do, Neil. Well, uh, Kojak. Does that mean it, anything it does to mean you? a lot to me? Obviously, I mean, who loves your baby was just something everybody, everybody said. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd just like to pick up on one thing Pricey said: the homophobia was really, really yeah. noticeable in this. Towards the end, in particular, there's, there's the very last line. I think um, when he's noshing on a lollipop that, and has an organ. That's it. It's just unpleasant, and 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 I guess I, I guess it's not funny for a start off. Um, but secondly, I, 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 perhaps it's reading too much into it, and I like the odd comedy record as well. But there seems to be yeah. perhaps a, a, a sort of urge towards parody in, in a lot of things um, in Top of the Pops yeah. at, at this time, which perhaps is the sign of not of a dying culture necessarily, but something that's on the yeah. skids a bit, um, wh- yeah. whereby just sort of sniggering at stuff <laughs> in a vague, vaguely unfunny yeah. way is kind of all that's left. Really, I mean, let's bear in mind. There's people here who probably haven't heard it. I mean, I hadn't heard it before. Before you know, we watched yeah. this, and, it, and it's basically a piss take of the, the recording process of it. And there's uh, there's there's Kojak, there's a uh, producer, a very camp producer, and there's Barry who's playing on the piano, and it's just you know. He's just come in to record the song. He starts singing. He says, "No, we just want you talking through the way through it." It's the kind of thing that you, if you heard it once on the radio, you thought you thought it was brilliant. <laughs> but God knows how many times you've heard it by the time it's got onto top of the pops. I tell you what, you you mentioned voiceover artists and you mentioned Tom Baker, mm. right? Now you probably know where I'm going yes. with this. Tom Baker Symphony. That's yes, all I'm going to say yes. to the to listeners. Type, go into go into YouTube. <laughs> type in Tom Baker Symphony. If they put that out as a double sided seven inch single, that'd be number one. Never mind number oh, twenty three or whatever it's got to. Can imagine the performance of it on top of the <laughs> without a doubt. Can imagine pants people dancing to it. <laughs> oh, as sexy items of furniture. Even for monkey shaggers. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, it, it, this really fucking drags, doesn't it? And the and the end bit where um, with the groupies, no, um, yeah, no, no, no. I mean the actual end of the song where the um, where the um, Kojak offers the producer a lollipop and there's a, a lot of unsavoury sucking sounds and it's and he he gets arrested at the end and it's like, well, what's he been arrested for? Is is he giving? Am I supposed to believe that he's giving Telesavas a nosh or are there drugs in the lollipop or is there any cottaging going on? It's it's just so confusing. He's just so been arrested confusing. for being a bit camp or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, yes. Yeah, pretty much so. Pretty much so. So, uh, anything else we want to say about this? Nah. No, <laughs> me neither. The following week, this performance helped it to drop right down to number 38. <laughs> Chris Sanford has retired and now has his own fly fishing business, but Bill Mitchell and that incredible voice of his sadly died in 1997. Oh. Oh, Theo. 
Oh, these are, oh, oh, these are truly wondrous. I mean, oh, heaven, oh, oh, there, oh, what is in these lollipops? You're under arrest, sweetheart. Sound 25, and that's it. Second time in the charts. Hello there. Excuse me interrupting you, but uh, we are the yin and yang groupies. The lads told me to give you this. Thank you very much indeed, gang. Uh, I've got me a lollipop and you've got bad company. Good love and gone bad. Roscoe is now flanked by two men in drag smoking a pipe and cigar, respectively, who hand Roscoe a massive lollipop as he introduces a film of good loving gone bad by Bad Company. Formed in London in 1973, Bad Company was comprised of Paul Rogers and Simon Kirk of Free, Mick Ralphs of Mott the Hoople and Boz Burrell of King Crimson. Yes, we're talking about a super group. This is a follow-up to Can't Get Enough of Your Love, which got to number 15 in June of 1974, and it's up from number 34 to number 31, and it's a film of them... So, you know, looking as if they're playing live, but probably knocked out during a sound check. Do we talk about the uh, the two men in drag? Because that would have been absolutely hilarious in 1975, wouldn't it? And also completely oh. baffling. I mean, what what is yeah, the connection yeah. exactly to that? You know, that that comedy song beforehand. Well, they had they had they had the girls beforehand in t-shirts saying I am a yin and yang fan, and these were wearing t-shirts saying I am a yin and yang groupie. So right, yeah, uh, great tumbleweed. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> it's following the same sort of strange. It's like the production is following the same sort of strange stream of consciousness that that, that Roscoe seems to be mining. Um, there's, yeah. there's no, there's no fucking connection. Nothing, nothing clicks with that bit. Yeah. Um, but bad company. Can I yes. talk about them? Just briefly. I mean, um, I have distinct memories of this song. Oddly enough, really, um, not from Top of the Pops. It's from being parked in a pub in a pram, and <laughs> uh, and and remembering um there was a lot of blokes i mean look i'm from the west midlands so a lot of blokes with kind of beer bellies who look like jeff lynn basically there were a lot of jeff lynn likes um <laughs> beard reactor like shades pint of brew 11 in their hand and they'd always march up to jukeboxes in pubs whenever i was parked in a pub in a pram and, and put songs like Bad Company, like this song on. Mm. Um, so so it, ha- it has, the, it, 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 for me, in an odd sense, even though it's, I suppose it's young person's music at that time, yeah. it's dad rock. It's dad yeah. rock to, in, in a big, big way. Um, although they're more famous, I think, for Feel Like Making Love, um, I actually quite like this. I, I, I didn't like mm. the song as such, yeah. but I like the feel of it. They yeah. had a sort of, um, they, they, they were throwing sort of Led Zeppi type moves. I like, his voice anyway and i, yeah, I kind I like of like the odd free too. song as well and they've got a kind of acdc type thump to it yeah. um that i actually quite enjoyed but but uh, yeah in an odd sense for me at the time this was dad rock this is what grown-ups listened to yeah. and because i'm from the west midlands what grown-ups listened to was was this and um black sabbath yeah and, <laughs> and, 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 and bands like that um so so this has quite quite potent memories for me in that regard yeah i mean i must i must admit that that a little bit of love by free was the first song i ever loved and ever right. you know sought to to play and listen to god knows why we had it because the only records we had were the ones that my dad had, had got off his rounds he was a removal man so any records that no one wanted he'd bring home so there'd be a lot of ronco stuff and i think the only record he actually ever bought apart from his old elvis and little richard Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? 
Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Singles was uh, the soundtrack to That'll Be The Day. And a, a little bit of love by free is the yeah. first song where I went, oh yeah, this I love this song and I want to I want to hear it again. So yeah, got a very soft spot for free. Now I just had one more thing to say. There, there was there was something about the posture of yes. the bass player in this band that yeah. for me signifies heaviness. It doesn't even matter what he's playing. There's that kind of troglodyte stooping. It's like he's wanking into a sock or something. <laughs> yes. And, um, <laughs> yes. It, it, it's it's and I don't see bass players do that anymore. They should do that. Yeah, they it instantly should, yeah. confers heaviness upon what you're doing. Yeah, and, and and again, like Brian in Sweet, it's it's platform problems. And I, I, I see <laughs> I see Paul Rogers because he's doing a lot of standing about, like Theresa May. It has to be said. And he's got a, he's got a very ill-advised tucked in blue turtleneck, which, in the words of my mum, makes him look a bit titter. <laughs> you know, get a get a denim waistcoat on or something, mate. Simon, what do you think of all this? Um, well, we know who they are, so yes. it's you know a bloke out of three, um, two blokes out of three, a uh, bloke out of Mott the Hoople, and a bloke out of King Crimson. But we also know who they're not, and this is where I've got to say. Neil has stolen my thunder. I'm a bit gutted oh, about this. Sorry, mate. No, no, because um, I was going to say at exactly the same time um, on the other side of the world, germinating and unbeknownst to us in this country at that time, yeah. were ACDC, yes. who yeah. actually released their first album in Australia the same year. Um, it didn't even come out in the UK. Was um, that TNT? No, it was uh, High Voltage. Was that the one? The, the oh, first yes, album yes, it was, yeah, it was, right. it was released twice. Um, but first of all, only in Australia in '75. And um, for me, ACDC, when they, you know, eventually broke through, did everything Bad Company do, but a million times better. This song, well, I'm going to say it's it's not a song for me. It's just some rock, capital S, capital R, just some rock. You know, it's just just some stuff. And imagine what their luggage must have smelt like. They just look like the stinkiest band. And the thing about not being able to stand up straight, it's a really good point, actually. That, you know the inability of rock rock bands to to stand up straight in 1975. It must have been a kind of boom time for osteopaths and chiropractors. Yeah, can you imagine the state of their spines nowadays? <laughs> it is all that perilous footwear. Um, it really is. Wearing. 
But I think you're right, Pricey. The High Voltage, the album that you're referring to, the it's got good songs on it. It's got memorable songs mm. on it. And and they have that thump to them, ACDC. The it's just 50% more raw. Here. It's 50% sexier. It's just 50% harsher. And for me, just Bad Company are just really kind of feeble and lame and rotten. It smells rotten to me. It's just, you know, rotten in the state of rock. If, if there's anything on this episode that makes me think, yeah, you know, punk probably did need to happen, that old cliche, this is probably the one. So the song would drop to number 35 the following week, but the follow-up Feel Like Making Love would get to number 20 in October of this year, and they were done as a chart act and split up in 1982. I mean, of course, the other thing that was uh, Peter Grant was their manager as well, so, you know, it just... You wouldn't mess with them, basically. No, you really wouldn't, no. No, you wouldn't tell them to, um, you know, wear some proper shoes. Stand up straight. No. Yeah. Good loving gone bad, bad company getting things together. You may cross now as we cross over the threshold of sounds. Peter Skellerin, hold on to love. Massive lollipop in his hand and makes a lollipop man reference and introduces Peter Skellerin. Oh, Roscoe. Born in Berre, Peter Skellen started a career as a concert pianist in the late 60s, but succumbed to the siren song of pop music and kicked around in a couple of bands. He went solo in 1972 and got to number three of that year with You're a Lady. This is his second chart hit and it's up from number 36 to number 21. I mean, before we go into this song... It only struck me while I was writing the notes of this. Did he ever go round dressed up as um, a you know bony monster <laughs> and bill it as the Skeletor? <laughs> go home, you're drunk. <laughs> Peter Skellen, who wasn't in the Buzzcocks, um, he was in Oasis though. That's um, that's Oasis, the uh, the classical pop trio with Julian Lloyd Webber and Mary Hopkin. What a shame um, that. The original Oasis didn't um, reform to perform Oasis songs. I'd love to hear Peter Skellen have a go at Champagne Supernova or something like that. You could have made a shitload of money in the mid-90s by putting on a festival with the other Oasis, the other Nirvana and the other Charlatans. Oh, that would have been brilliant. And imagine an Oasis tribute band, but for that Oasis. (laughs) And you you pitch up at the Stone Roses bar or whatever in your fucking pretty green parka and you get subjected to um, to, to that. My ex-girlfriend's brother was a big T-Rex fan and he once turned up to a DJ set by the drum and bass DJ Mickey Finn because he didn't realise he thought it was the same guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. There's a T-Rex going, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we've we've got a Prince A in Nottingham. Oh, for fuck's sake. Any DJ that does that has to go under the name of Gary (laughs) Dieter for six months to see how they get on. I've got to say, I'm I'm getting absolutely nothing from from this song, and the the thing that upsets me about it more is I can't even look at him because he doesn't have enough skin for his face. Um, it's like looking at um, a laboratory rabbit that's lost all of its hair. Um, but he he did write one of the songs on the Blade Runner soundtrack, did so fair play to him for that at least. Which yeah. one was it? I can't remember any Blade Runner tunes with um, colliery bands. And do you expect me to fire up Wikipedia at this late hour? <laughs> Nils, is doing anything for you? I mean, this this era. I mean, we've already, you know, we've already covered Gilbert O'Sullivan. It was it was quite the time for for, for young men and pianos. Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
the Mr. Opening, Shifter in the PG the, Tips advert. The, 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 uh, I can think of. <laughs> the opening of this record is fantastic. Um, you can make a really good hip-hop track, basically, out of that opening. It's a mm. nice opening. But then it all gets horribly ripe and over-egged and just mm. gruesome. You can't actually hear the song in it. You can't hear a song. What you can hear yeah. is a shitload of musicians being musicianly. Uh, to kind yeah. of echo what Pricey was saying about Bad Company. Um, this is the kind of stuff as well, I think, that probably militated towards something rawer and something more energetic and something more interesting. This is grown-ups kind of showing uh, showing off. That's all it is. It's, it's just yeah. everyone playing all the time. There's no space in this song for anything to emerge. And the lyrics and melody are entirely unmemorable. It went up to 21, I think you said, didn't you? And I'd love to know yeah. what happened after it. It must have dropped like a stone. Yeah, and it's, it's very arch. It's kind of upsettingly arch, isn't mm. it? That he's, you know, basically trying to be a bit Cole Porter and, you know, a bit Flanders and Swan and a bit Noel Coward and all of that. But it, it, it almost stinks of kind of superiority and elitism of, you know, um, this kind of nod and a wink between him and the people watching yeah. it that, yeah, um, we are the superior folks. We know better yeah, we're a bit above than this, the uh, idiots, the pop idiots who are buying all these other records the, on the, the show. The same thing you kind of identified with Super Trump the other week. Mm. Yes. 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 Yeah. I mean, and it's the reason it's the reason a lot of people hate the divine comedy who I actually like yeah. but you know that there, there is that thing about them too yeah I mean this is a, to me this is the kind of thing that Bev of uh, Abigail's party would play when she's got a bit sick of Demis Roussos <laughs> the following week after this uh, episode of Top of the Pops hold on to love drop down to number 24 my god Top of the Pops you're a curse but would recover and end up at its highest position of number 14 that's always weird. That does when it, that is when a song goes down and and then kind of like goes up again. You know, usually yeah. You wonder what forces were at play. Well, usually it's because the artist has died. It's like Elvis with um, Way Down and John Lennon with just like starting over. You know, it takes usually yeah. takes something pretty major. I mean, maybe Peter Skellen had a I don't know had a bad injury that wasn't his fault I mean, or something. He might have fallen off some big shoes. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of it about. He next bothered the charts in 1978 with a cover of Love is the Sweetest Thing. And as Simon's pointed out, in 1984, he formed a supergroup with Julian Lord Webber and Mary Hopkin called Oasis. When the other Oasis pitched up 10 years later, Skellen noted, while it's obvious that they revere the Beatles, the Beatles were bright people and never rude. <laughs> He then formed a partnership with Richard Stilgo, who I discovered today used to own a 10-ton digger. He's now just got a normal JCB, so he's he's scaled down. Um, (laughs) Peter Skellen was ordained as an Anglian minister earlier this year, just before he passed away. So, yeah, he's had a a busy life, that man did. Skellerin and hold on to love. It sounds 21. Going down two spots to 23. We go for the 10cc. Let's go for a little minestrone. I'm feeling a bit hungry. How about you? Try it because life is just one big minestrone. Roscoe mispronounces Peter Skellen's name again and then goes into a massively overlong and rambling intro about minestrone. He just won't fucking shut up about it. Yeah. Clearly, here's an example of a radio DJ who's just conditioned to fill dead air until the song starts, and he's working with TV producers, and it, and it just don't work like that, does it? 
Yeah, it's it's like that bit in I'm Alan Partridge where he's looking up at the clock ticking towards the hour and he's going, news. Formed in Stockport in 1969 and named after a wadge of spunk, 10cc's first two singles, Donna and Rubber Bullets, got to number two and number one respectively in 1972. By 1975, they'd had three more hit singles under the belt and had just got out of their record deal with Jonathan King and have signed with Mercury Records for $1 million on the strength of a new song called I'm Not In Love. They're keeping the powder dry on that one for the moment because this is the first single on their new label, the follow-up to Silly Love, which got to number 24 in May of 1974, and it's a new entry at number 23. Kevin Godley's wearing a jumper with his own face on it. How do we feel about that? (laughs) I quite like I quite it, like that as well. I do like that a lot. There's something really odd about 10cc, and that, yeah. that's another manifestation of it. Um, from their name outwards to everything else, there's something distinctly odd about them. Um, mm. The real sparks kind of Todd Rundgren feel to this song. Uh, yeah, overladen in the same way that the Skellum one was, but a good song. Um, yeah, and and, and um, I think that you know it, it, it's fascinating the way that yeah they were holding on to I'm not in love at this point, and mm. Nigel Grange I think who'd taken over A and R for them, taken them off Jonathan King's label and brought them over to his label, um, yeah. and said hold back on that. Um, this song I'm, I'm interested by the fact that it mentions Minestrone. Was Minestrone in '75? Was that that was exotic, of, it, mate? Yeah, it was exotic, wasn't it? Oxtail, we were we we were conversing with that. Um, minestrone, no, that's I, I had no idea what a minestrone was. There's a great story that a, a few only a few years before this, um, the Who were playing a gig in in Britain where they had a stall selling pizzas and nobody knew what pizzas yeah. were. The Brit the British audience were completely baffled. So um, instead, the proprietors folded the pizzas in half and sold them as hot cheese and tomato sandwiches <laughs> and made a killing of it. So, you know, that that tells you the kind of culture that we're talking about. Yeah, Minestrone, who knew what that was in 75? I don't think anyone no, did. Th- but, you know, these guys, they've probably, you know, been on holiday yeah. in, in, you know, yeah. uh, in, in, in Tuscany or something like that. Yeah, and, and you know, they, they go on about Parmesan and then they go on about lasagna. It's like, what the fuck is this weird language you're throwing at us? You're on drugs <laughs> or something? <laughs> I really like NCC though, and yes. of course they are—they um, are another supergroup, um, a band yeah. with four—I would say four geniuses in it. Um, in fact, and um, of of the two clever, clever pop bands of the seventies, you've basically got them. You got Steely yeah. Dan. Um, I I much prefer NCC, yeah. and um, and I, I strongly suspect they've been an influence on some of my favourite bands from more recent times, such as Super Fury Animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to say, though, I think this song um, isn't them at their best. Um, it's just a load of fairly tortured Christmas cracker puns. Like, yeah. had an Eiffel had an Eiffel of the Tower in France. Um, so, basically, they've failed to heed the no smirking sign in the studio because yes. this is a four-minute smirk. Well, the one lyric I completely got wrong was um, the line um, about Minnie Mouse, that she gets more fan mail than the Pope. And I always thought it was, she gets more fanny than the Pope. <laughs> I, like, I like the exotic. Although there is a whole verse about shitting. The fact shitting. that was exotic in 75. 75, I think, was the first year that McDonald's opened in this country. Um, so a right. lot of food was, uh, 
was with minestrone i guess occupied the same place as moussaka at the time as a kind of exotic well, relic yeah. of holidays oh. it's tucked away on the b side of the album isn't it it's tucked away at the, like, like near the end um, yeah of this album which suggests it probably wasn't a single initially um uh, i think simon's right about the lyrics etc but but it's uh, the sound of the record is is great i think um the mm. mix of things and i can definitely Super Furries was the band that I was thinking of all day but couldn't name because it was reminding me mm. massively of them. But you're absolutely mm. right. It's got yeah. a vibe to it. Yeah, in fact, um, there, there are two particular... There's a song by each band that I really connect. Um, do you know the song Ice Hockey mm-hmm. Hair by Super Furry Animals has got a real feel of I'm Mandy Fly Me right, by 10CC right. about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as the performance goes, the cameraman doesn't know what the fuck's going off because he spends so much time ignoring the singer who's uh, uh, Low Cream behind the keyboard and he focuses on Graham Goldman so you get big chunks of him just like standing there playing a guitar nothing coming out of his mouth I love it when that happens and when it finally goes over to Lowell Cream the, the, the camera spends so much time zooming in on his hand looking at his ring it's like the camera's gone oh that's a really nice ring yeah for people of my age actually uh, oh, they were only a few years younger than you two but um Godly and Cream were more apparent to me in the 80s yeah than, and, and then I kind of worked backwards um, via you know you know the odd way pop music gets opened up to you by the strangest artifacts for me it was a book um mm. paul gambaccini's 100 greatest albums ever um obviously you know back then you don't really have kind of reference books as such to learn about music so so this no. book from cough central library sort of taught me an awful lot um and also um there was a fucking compilation come out in about 83 i think and it was called formula 30 um, it probably doesn't ring any bells for you, but it, it, it featured a blackboard no. on the front with four, I don't know what Formula Thirty meant. Uh, oh wait a minute, yeah, I remember yeah. this. Yeah, and it yeah. was a double album, yeah. and and, it, and it, con- it, it contained an odd mix of things. It had like high house silver lining and stuff like that on it, um, but it also had stuff like Virginia Plain on it and Love Is the Drug, and it had um, Common Eileen on it. It was a really odd mix of stuff, but I'm Not in Love by Ten CC was on that. And um, right. and and making the connection, and, and of course that record just blows your mind the first time you hear it when you're a nipper. So I worked backwards mm. to 10CC from Godly and Cream, because and really I worked backwards from the fact that their videos were so astonishing in the eighties. Um, I worked backwards from those towards 10CC. Yeah. Really, I've really enjoyed them since. Yeah, I mean the 10CC record that really grabbed me as a kid was Good Morning Judge. For some bizarre reason. I mean, I, I was around yeah. and I was interested in the charts when I'm Not In Love was number one. And that was just everywhere. It was so ubiquitous that you couldn't have an opinion on it. It was just, mm. you know, <laughs> before Bohemian Rhapsody, that was the song of, of the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and with this one, you know, it's, it's, it's nice enough. I like this song. But, you know, what the fuck is a minestrone? The thing that annoys me about Godly and Cream, in fact, just about Lowell Cream, is that um, a few years ago, not that long ago, um, he formed a band with Trevor Horn. Right. And they, they didn't call it Cream Horn. Oh, they called yeah. it the They called it The Producers. I mean, no, for Jesus. That's just irritating. Open goal. <laughs> so the single jumped up to number 14 the following week and would peak at number seven. The follow-up, I'm Not In Love, would get to number one in the summer of 75, but Godly and Cream would leave the band a year later. <laughs> 23 this week, and checking things out from 10CC, those musical merchants from Stockport with Life as a Minestrone. Pans people have something nice to do right now. A little hip-shaking. Little moving and a grooving gonna make you live a quiver in your back crack. To number seven, Jim Gill's trap. Swing your daddy. 
Roscoe informs us that Pan's people have something nice to do that will make your liver quiver, your back crack, and presumably, in your dad's case, make his knob throb. It's Swing Your Daddy by Jim Gilstrap. Born in Texas in 1946, Jim Gilstrap served a stint in Vietnam before becoming a session singer in the early 70s. His most recognisable session work at that time was the opening two lines in You Are the Sunshine of My Life by Stevie Wonder. He signed a solo contract in 1975, and this is his first single, which was written by Kenny Nolan, who co-wrote My Eyes Adored You for Frankie Valle and Lady Marmalade for LaBelle. And it's up one place to number seven. Do we talk about the It's song? a bit of a tune, this, it isn't is. it? Yeah. It is, it is, yeah. It's, it's sort of, um, it's 70s soul meets 50s doo-wop. It's exactly, sort of, yeah. The stylistics... The stylistics meets the Spaniels. It reminds me a like lot that. of Miss Grace by the Times. It's got that kind of swing yes. to it. Yeah. Or even, we're talking about Godling Cream, Wedding Bells by Godling yes. Cream, that yeah. kind of feel. Um, sort of, yeah, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, 50s meets 70s, somewhere in the middle, you know, sort of Temptations kind of maybe, that that kind of vibe. But um, Pan's People, yes. right? Pan's People here, they look like they've been fed through a document shredder. Yes, and, <laughs> yes they um, really do. If... What's and the theme? Document shredding, man. That's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. If, right? yeah. Basically, um, if if this if this performance was broadcast this week, people would take it to be a topical satire on what's going on behind closed yes. doors at Kensington yes. Chelsea Town Hall as we speak. Yes, I I I I didn't get the concept at all because I've just written down bog roll. Yeah, and that clearly isn't the concept. Yeah. Um, but I think I was thrown by Roscoe what he said before the song, liver quivering your back crack. What the fuck is he on about? Yeah, um, it's, your, it's your standard it's go-to totally remark, isn't it? You know, make your knees freeze <laughs> and your um, tits go on the fritz. But it is a tune because the vocal's wonderful. You can tell the guy's got yes. pedigree, as it were. Yes. Uh, I think he sung on Talking Book, didn't he? And Indivisions. Yeah. Um, so he, he's been on some good stuff. This is a, yeah, a, a, an actual discovery for me from this. I never knew this record before. No, me neither. Out the top of the pops, and uh, we'll seek it out. And I have to say that both the actual song and the performance is ruined by the camera work because the camera's swinging from side to side or hall, and it it looks <laughs> like the whole studio's been tossed about on the waves. Meaning that there must be some teas being brought up across the land as, as as we're watching this. I mean, Roscoe probably felt right at home with that. Probably did it just for him. <laughs> but I've got here that, that Pan's people, like Simon said, Pan's people are in dresses that look like they've been put through a paper shredder, uh, making them look like sexy Vileda super mops. <laughs> you know, Roscoe, um, is he a character in that film, that fucking boat? Boat the rot. boat that rot, apparently that one of them is. I mean, I've not seen the film because it looks see, No, I've not seen the film. That is a film that I, I know I cannot stomach. Yeah. Um, just watching the brief seconds that I've watched of it. Now I was just checking. That's another yeah, there's an American character on it and it apparently it's based on Roscoe and apparently Roscoe was pitching his own film about pirates uh, years before. And, you know, he was, I, I think he was talking about suing with them, but now he, he ended up promoting it and saying, yeah, that's me. And so I don't I don't know what went on there, but I don't care because okay, it's not okay. a film I'm going to watch. I mean, the other thing, the other takeaway I've got from this performance by Pan's People is that Cherry Gillespie has the best hair ever. I would kill to have hair like Cherry Gillespie. I'd kill to have hair like Bobby Gillespie. I mean, you know, beggars yeah. can't be choosers, but, uh, to be honest. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> At the time, I don't think we realised it, but Pan's people were, were were good in a way that no other dance troupe on Top of the Pops were. And, I'm, you know, like a lot of you, I'm sure, watching the 84 Top of the Pops and 83 Top of the Pops. Yeah. Um, those dancers are just fucking atrocious. Yeah, they've just been um, dragged out of Pan's Pineapple pe- Studio, haven't they? And, and just... Pa- pa- Pan's people, for all their kind of lumpiness, and I don't mean lumpiness bodily, I mean lumpiness in their movements yeah. and their kind of predictable flick Colby moves. Um, there's something really likeable about them, I think, yeah. um, and likeable in this performance. And not just because they're nice to look at. Yeah. Um, there's just something that, that carries that carries that song along with some energy. It's good. Mm. You know what, right? The more we see of Roscoe in this episode, the more I wonder if he even has any kind of clue what he's saying or what he means. <laughs> um, just going into I, I I think he's maybe kind of internalised a bunch of random phrases. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like you know, you used to get um, action men uh, that you pull uh, a cord yes. out of their chest and you let it yeah. go, and they'd say like five or six phrases. Or um, I got this thing from LA. It was like a, a little um, Beavis and Butthead speaking <laughs> thing, and you just yeah. click it, and they they say a load of stuff. Um, he's basically like that, isn't he? It's um, I guess you might have seen the film Vanishing Point, the classic road movie, uh-huh, and uh-huh. there's there's a DJ character in that called DJ Super Soul, yes. who just does these kind of stream of consciousness rambles and rants. Yeah. And I, um, you know, whether or not Roscoe was the real deal, he really was of that generation. Mm. He's one of those kind of DJs. Yeah. Or, or whether he's kind of come over to the UK and tried to pitch himself as, as that. Wh- whichever of those is true, it, um, I, I don't think he knows anymore. No. And I don't think he knows what he's <laughs> no. saying. And um, so, I, I, I mean, this is maybe why he's quite a rarity on top of the pot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reason that you don't see much of him after 1975 is that he actually goes back to America because his dad is diagnosed with Parkinson's. So, he, you know, he's got legitimate reasons for not being on top of the pops anymore. But, yeah, I I, I share your opinion, Simon. He feels a bit like a fish out of water here. And, you know, when compared to someone like, you know, someone we take the piss out of all the time, like DLT and Tony Blackburn, at least they know when yeah, to shut up and they, and they know when to talk. No, no, it's just there is that massive contrast between him and him and British presenters in that, you know, Tony Blackburn come out of um, the same pirate background, but Tony Blackburn's... Practically all of them Tony did, Blackburn's, Yeah, yeah. Tony Blackburn's really slick as soon as he arrives on Radio 1 and, and throughout his kind of career, he's... Yeah. he's, he's he he make I mean he makes a vague kind of sense, but he does make sense. He doesn't do this kind of mad dog kind of hollering nuttiness that Roscoe does. Yeah, yeah. So the following week, Swing Your Daddy got to number four, its highest position, and this will be the only hit single in Jim Gilstrap's career. But he went on to sing the theme tune to Good Times, which is something that any American listener will know and. All of us Brits have absolutely no fucking idea about. Uh, he was one of the backing singers on the Grease soundtrack and he worked with Keith Moon, Leo Sayer and Khalees. Sadly, not all at the same time. Swing your daddy. Check things out there with Pan's people. They're very, very nice indeed. Take a chance on romance. Anybody seen a gibbon anywhere? I know there's a gibbon. There must be one. Gibbon! You're number four! Come on, everybody! It's Gibbon time! Formed in Cambridge University in the mid-60s, Timbrook Taylor, Graham Gordon and Bill Oddie began the TV series The Goodies in 1970. And by this point, they're pulling down 10 million viewers an episode, have already won two Silver Roses of Montreux, and one month before this episode 
caused a viewer to have a fatal heart attack while laughing at the Yeki Thump episode. Thanks to Bill Oddie, there was always a musical element to the goodies. He had a deal with Parlophone Records in the mid-60s, and he signed to John Peel's Dandelion Records in 1970 to do a version of On Ilkley Mall Bar Tat in the style of Joe Cocker. Have you heard that? Jesus. No, I haven't heard it. Should I? It's really good. I've got to say, I'm going to put my hands up. I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is the follow-up to the double-A side, the in-betweeners, Father Christmas Do Not Touch Me, which got to number seven in December of 1974, and it's jumped up from number 10 to number four. I definitely loved the goodies at the time. Um, me too. And this song was huge in my school playground. Um but now, mm. through the ravages of time and rock and roll and all of that, literally all I can remember about them is the giant kitten bringing down the post office tower in the opening credits. So yeah. I, I would actually love to re-watch the series sometime, but then it's, it'll be with a certain kind of trepidation because I've got a horrible feeling that, that it wouldn't stand up at all. It can be a tough watch at time. I mean, there are elements of it that you just that would just never get on British television nowadays. Uh, there is... Mm. Uh, I mean, the one thing that's, that springs to mind is the um, the a kind of there were a celebrity safari park where they're trying to bring down um, a wild escaped Rolf Harris, oh, yeah. uh, which which obviously obviously isn't going to happen nowadays. But the other thing is they've got black and white minstrels acting like monkeys oh, God. and jumping on cars and snapping off aerials and stuff oh, like man. that. It's like Whoa. it's all but, coming back to me now. Like my name was yeah. Celine Dion. Uh, yes. I, I sort of and wonder if, in, in the same way that I was saying earlier, that, that the Three Degrees and Philly were a missing link between the Supreme slash Motown and Sister Sledge slash Disco, mm. the, the goodies were sort of missing link between maybe the monkeys in the sixties and, yeah. and and the young ones. You know, in in terms of in terms yeah. of you know kind of funny blokes living in a house together and all that, and maybe they yeah. subconsciously. Um, set me up for my absolute love of, of the young ones. But, you know, and yeah. I, I, I do think I'll go back and watch, even with a caveat no, of what, what you just said. You must. I but, mean, Kitten Kong's fucking brilliant. I mean, I, I watched, I went back to the goodies uh, about seven, about a, about a decade ago, because I wanted to show them to my nephew, who was five, and he fucking loved them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I obviously didn't show all of them, and I vetted them, but... Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, things how, like however crap fight. it might have been, I, I still reckon it was probably better than Monty Python. You know, in terms yeah. of like laughs per minute, laughs per second. Um, Definitely. And, yeah. and by the way, I've I've got a, I've got a soft spot for Bill Oddie because he apparently yes. he apparently has, and you can probably you probably know where I'm going with this. He's yes, got a I massive do. he's got a massive mural of Prince on his living room wall, and yes. uh, and and it's it's the picture from the back of the Dirty Mind album. So that's the one where Prince is reclining with his knee in the air, wearing stockings and suspenders. That's in Bill Oddie's <laughs> living room. So whatever, apparently he's a bit irascible and a bit difficult to work with. And, you know, he's, he's had, you know, mental health issues and all of that. And, you know, and, and whatever else. I, I, I don't know much about him. I'm not interested in ornithology or anything like that. But I just think <laughs> just for being a massive, ma- massive Prince fan, it makes me think kindly of him. The, the goodies, I mean, were on definitely when, when, when uh, at this time in my house. And I remember them throughout my childhood. Yeah. Um, I, I loved that show. Uh, Bill Oddie, I think, is the most interesting goody in a sense. He's clearly the most yeah. irascible, the most problematic, the most angry, and probably the driving force behind you know things like the Funky Gibbon. I think the I think the reason this record, in a sense, works is because it is actually funky because they've got yes. that band Gonzalez playing the music, and it is actually oh really, it is actually a pretty funky little thing. Gonzalez were a sort of disco funk band from the mid seventies from Britain, right? Um, Haven't stopped came, dancing yet. 
Yeah, they, they came out with their first album, I think 74, it was, it was Roger Deacon's favourite album of that year, the, the guy from Queen. <laughs> but um, wow. That's it, John it, Deacon. Do you mean John Deacon John Deacon, Roger Taylor? not Roger Taylor. Come sorry, on, John Neil, I, I need to pin you down on this. Which <laughs> member of Queen is it? It's the one whose surname is Deacon. It was his, <laughs> it was his okay. favourite album of the year. But no, it is... An, Joey. It, <laughs> Let's not go down that route. Let's not. But... <laughs> But um, it is actually uh, it, 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 it's a funky record. It, 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 the, 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 the keyboards are quite are quite funky. They go for it with some gusto. Bill Oddie more than anyone else. Graham Garden's actually the best dancer. Um, I think. Yes. He's got, he's got a sort of soft elegance and poise like Eric Morecambe had whenever he danced. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, it, Graham Garden's kind of like a, a, a ginger Jermaine Clement from uh, Flight of the Concords, isn't he? Out of Flight of the Concords, <laughs> must be. The bastard son of Graham Garden. He must be. But for me, for me, something like Funky Gibbon, yeah, totally links through to things like uh, Living Dull by Young Ones. For me, it's... I I don't think Python ever did, like, a comedy record that got in the charts. They had the whole Ruttles thing and everything else. I mean, they only did albums, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Whereas this was a pop single. No, I've got a seven-inch single of Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Well, of course, yeah, apart from that one, yeah. Yeah, you're right. But so, I, yeah, d- I doubt I doubt Python appeared on top of the pops and were willing to do that because goodies were yeah. cognizant, I think, of, of their massive child audience and kids fucking yeah. loved oh, them. So. A night when the goodies were on, followed by it's a knockout. That was absolute <laughs> bliss in the seventies. <laughs> and the goodies, you know, there, there was a time when I can't remember what year it was, but the goodies would be on right after Top of the Pops. Perfect. Yeah. The one thing that I'm a bit confused about is uh, midway through the song, we it cuts to the goodies in Ecky Thump gear, uh, Pan's people doing the funky gibbon, along with the yin and yang cross-dressing groupies, and there's someone in a spotty dog costume with a hat on. What the fuck is that about? This isn't Peter Shelley come back in to try and plug his whole dog thing. <laughs> well, because I, I, I thought it was... You know the stand-in for uh, Peter Shelley's dog, and I'm—it's just racking my brain, and I'm absolutely terrified that that this dog is something that's so fucking obvious. And anyone listening to this is just going to go, "Oh, he's just described so and so thick bastard." So I might edit this. It's bit a spotty up. dog, isn't it? It looks a—it looks a bit like Snoopy. I think yeah. what's unsettling about that moment is that it is a moment. It doesn't last for any longer than about a second and a half. Yeah, uh, with no explanation. Probably happened earlier on in the day when they were rehearsing. Because Pan's yeah. people are there in their costumes and stuff, but it, it, yeah, I, I think Cher- it's, Cherry Gillespie's giving it the fucking proper gas face, isn't she? Like in uh, third base, <laughs> it's like a strange little subliminal message. Yeah, um, it's like yes. that bit in the film Gregory's Girl where um, two people in penguin costumes just walk down the corridor, and yes. it's never remarked yeah. upon. No one ever explains it; it's just there yeah. for a split second. But the song dropped one place to number five the following week, and the follow-up Black Pudding Bertha would go to number nineteen in July, and they'd have two more top 30 hits before 1975 was over. Was, you know, they were one of the biggest bands mm-hmm. of 1975. Yeah, them and the Wombles were kind of these sort of BBC <laughs> yeah. absolute bankers in the charts. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And what with Paul Nicholas and Telly Savalas, it was just, you know, sometimes yeah. you just switch on top of the pops and it's all the people you're watching the rest of the day, the rest of the evening. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Funky Gibbon. We've got to be out of breath after all that. The Funky Gibbon done for you by the goodies, currently number four. I still haven't worked out if it's legal or not. That's the thing that I'm looking into at the moment. We're going into disco land right now. Little lady by the name of Susan Cadigan. 
Roscoe takes us into disco land and introduces Susan Cadogan. Born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1951, Alison Cadogan worked as a librarian who did a bit of singing on the side. In 1970, her boyfriend, a DJ, encouraged her to release a single which led to her linking up with Lee Scratch Perry. This cover of a 1971 song made famous by Millie Jackson in 1973 did nothing in Jamaica, but it got to number one in the UK reggae charts. It's a new entry this week at number 34. Why is Roscoe saying disco land? Yeah, what's he on disco about? Break? I didn't get that at all. No, I have no idea. For me? I have no doubt, but Roscoe has got form with, uh, you know, he, he's done, he did a version of Al Capone for Trojan Records in the late 60s. Well. So he's, he's not an, an unknown to it. You know, no. you'd think he'd be on safer ground than someone like, than, than like say, Tony Blackburn. I, I love Hurt So Good. Um, it's up there for me with Silly Games it's, and with yes. um, Uptown Top Ranking. It's just one of those one-off, you know, female reggae hits that's just unforgettable and just just, mm. just superb. I, You know, it's the best version of this song. The Millie Jackson version, I think, is a bit too grown up. The Katie Love yeah. version, which is actually the first version of this song, is quite a, nice, right, quite yes. a nice little soul number. But... Um, this is the best version, and and she's got real poise and presence, I think, in the performance, which gives yeah. gives the lyrics. I mean, some of the lyrics, there's there's a line in there. I think, "Sink your teeth right through my bones," isn't there? And and it's like Cannibal fucking yeah. corpse or something. But um, it's it's a dark <laughs> song in a sense, but just just a great song, guaranteed floor filler for me if you DJ with it. Yeah. And and um, the, the other thing about Susan Cadogan she was a librarian I was racking my brains to think of other librarian singers but um, uh, mm. no I couldn't think of any uh, the only other famous librarian I could think of was Mao Zedong but um, right. yeah it's, it's not a disco yeah his reggae songs were shit <laughs> it's not a disco song but it's one of the all time greats I think yeah um, mm. suddenly the world just stops doesn't it I mean this is utterly mm. sublime um, my my favourite subgenre of reggae isn't heavy dub or, or conscious protest reggae but lovers rock this stuff yeah um, lovers rock of course being yeah. a very British genre really um, first generation immigrants yeah. in, in, in West London or, or Birmingham making these kind of sweet usually female fronted reggae pop records um, and, and because of yeah. that I, I think it's, it's the musical equivalent of, of Vindaloo or Biryani it's, it's something that was transplanted over <laughs> here from somewhere else and, mut- and mm-hmm. mutated yeah. into something yeah. unique I mean this song was recorded in Jamaica but British audiences made it a hit and, and she signed to yeah. a British label and the national anthem of Lovers Rock of course Neil mentioned Silly Games by Janet Kay, um, who yes. actually is British, yeah. which is straight up one of the greatest records ever made, um, especially the the twelve inch. But this this is yeah. close, and, and and it's aimed squarely at the demographic who were more interested in a thousand volts of Holt than in Catch mm. a Fire by Bob Marley and the Whalers, and yeah. and and it's all yeah. the better for that. I think I, it's just completely haunting and completely magical. And I like what Neil said about her having this kind of poise and presence. She really has. It's not overstated. It's the way that, yeah, she, mm. she does hold back. And uh, that, that echo effect on the vocals just slays me every time. You know, never, never fails. And of course, the, the poise is, is needed because she, not only is she dealing with wearing a Santa-themed halter neck <laughs> dress, uh, she's also dealing with a BBC orchestra interpretation of the song. Um, and 
I've got to say that they make a better stab of this song than they do normally with reggae yeah, songs. Yeah, it's all right, actually. I mean, of course, I didn't even notice until he said that. No, yeah, I didn't notice. Exactly. I, know. I didn't notice. Exactly. Yeah, uh, because the you know that I mean the classic one is Uptown Top Ranking, which turns into a bit of a fucking unpopular <laughs> song. Uh, but no, they've got it. They've got it nailed on here, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I mean, the the the, th- the thing is with with all kind of. Um, with a lot of the Lovers Rock records in the mid-70s and a lot of reggae hits in the UK, the heartbreaking narrative always with reggae is that people don't get paid. And and, yeah. and the, the mess of labels that this song was on, it was on Perry's label and then D.I.P. and then Magnet and then Black Wax. And it was, you just That's get right. the sense with so many records that, that, that uh, you know, if you if I put on Janet Kaye's City, City Games at a carved party now, it's it's floor filler you know it, it, it's one of them tunes that you hold back for the last mm. hour um yeah. it, it's just one of those and 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 yet one wonders did susan cadogan you know get what she deserved for her brilliant performance of this song mm. um I, i've got yeah. a feeling she probably didn't which is a bit bit yeah. sad but um, and it's an extremely adult song as well isn't it i mean yeah. i remember being into reggae when i was a teenager and that and Lovers Rock, I, I disliked it for such a long time. I had to grow up to mm-hmm. to be able to appreciate it. You know what get, I mean? You, you had to get your heart broken. Well, yes, exactly. A little yeah, while yeah. ago, God, it's probably it's probably anything up to twenty years ago because that's how old I am now. But um, Trojan did put out well, they they put out a whole series of these box sets. But there was a brilliant, I think it's on three discs yeah. of of Lovers Rock, and it's just fantastic. If you know people listen to this, wondering what the hell we're yeah. talking about, one one sort of primer. That's the one to get. So the following week, Hurt So Good jumped up to number 25 and would eventually spend three weeks at number four. The follow-up, Love Me Baby, was produced by Pete Waterman and got to number 22 in August of 1975, but that was the last bit of sexy chart action she got and she went back to being a librarian, intermittently coming out of retirement from the 90s onwards. And of course, Hurt So Good was covered by Jimmy Somerville and it got to number 15 in 1995. Susan Cadigan getting things together there with Hurt So Very Good, a disco breaker, and now perhaps through the media of television, who knows? Next week, super success. Moving on toward that number one Bay City Rollers, say no more. If you hate me after what I say Can't put it off any longer Just gotta tell her anyway One girl I want to marry, big tits and an airy fanny. <laughs> that was taught to me at school. Did, didn't you have that, Simon? No, but I think that's amazing. I think somebody should collect all these things into some kind of book or some kind of like you know oral oral history. Oh, sure, I mean, what was the other one we had at our school at the time? Of course, new faces, which was you're a star, you're a star. Left me knickers in me boyfriend's car. <laughs> Is this ringing any bells for you, Simon? You must have had loads at your school. Yeah, there was... Uh, oh, God. You put me on the spot now. The but... first one I ever learned... First one I ever learned was the Wrigley Spirit and Gum advert, which was Wrigley Spirit and Gum, Gum, Gum. Oh, stick, stick it up, up your bum, bum, bum. 
bum if it don't fit 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 go and have a shit 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 I only heard a really lame one about it. Do you remember? Uh, was there ever one at your school out for Boogie Nights by Heatwave? No. Ah. There was one at ours. I'm not going to sing it. It was called Bogey Nights. And it's about picking your nose and putting your mouth neat. It, it fits with the lyrics. But um, yeah, oh. somebody should collect these things. Fantastic. <laughs> well, all right, and Simon, you must know this one. Surely my school wasn't a fucking hothouse of, of twisted lyrics. You know the Bay City Roller song, you know, B-A-Y, B-A-Y, B-A-Y-C-I-T-Y with an R-O-L-L-E-R-S, Bay City Rollers. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sing it right. Did you ever sing, usually the boys, which was B-A-Y, B-A-Y, B-A-Y-C-I-T-Y with an R-O-L-L-E-R-S, Bay City Rollers are a mess. They can't sing, got false teeth, Woody looks like Ed Woody with an R O double L E R S. Bass City Rollers R O S. That's amazing. I can't believe you don't know no, I don't. That. <laughs> I feel like my life's been wasted. I went to the wrong school. Al, it was just your school, man. Oh, God. So anyway, formed in Edinburgh in 1966, the Bay City Rollers got their name by throwing a dart at a map of America, which landed on Bay City, Michigan. If the throw had been slightly off, they could have been called the Otter Lake Rollers, the Bad Axe Rollers, or even the Titaboasi Rollers. <laughs> they first troubled the charts in 1971 with Keep On Dancing, a 1965 hit by the Gentries that the Rollers took to number nine, but they'd have to go through a two-year run of flop records before getting in Les McEwen as lead singer, and they'd have four top ten hits in 1974. This is their first single of 1975, a cover of the 1965 Four Seasons song, and the follow-up to All Of Me Loves All Of You, which got to number four in October of 1974, and is currently celebrating its four week at number one their new tv show shanga lang has just started on the first of this month their new lp once upon a star has just been released and we are in the throes of peak roller mania this is also the first song that the band have actually played on where do we start with this well my next door neighbor and best friend at park crescent uh, was liam goff whose dad owned the newsagents, right. which I was very jealous of because he meant he got free toys, free sweets, all of that. And oh. as you can probably guess from the name Liam Goff, they were an Irish family. Now, Liam's mm-hmm. older sister, who was probably called Sinead or Siobhan or Neve or something, was obsessed <laughs> with the Bay City Rollers. So she had right. she had the tam shanter and the white flares with a tartan trim and all the rest of it. So pretending to be Scottish, really. The 70s were a very pretending to be Scottish decade in a way. We even did it in uh, yes. in 1978 when Scotland qualified for the World Cup, despite the fact that... Um, and 74, yeah. yeah. Despite yeah. the fact that Joe Jordan had cheated Wales out of their uh, rightful place. Um, I, I never got the rollers <laughs> myself, although Bye Bye Baby's a tune. And Shangalang, that is a that is a tune, I've got to admit. But my, my rollers story is that I once saved Les McEwen's life. Um, what? Well, kind of collectively I did. Um when I was at uni, um, Les McEwen's Bay City Rollers um, yeah. were booked to play our summer ball. And there was a riot, basically. Not not a riot of hatred, but of love. Um, you right. know, everybody wow. had had a few drinks and people who had succumbed to roller mania 10 years earlier, I guess, 
having some kind of dormant lust <laughs> triggered in them and going wow. absolutely wild, just reaching really? out. Scre- it was insane. And I was on a social committee Fucking and we hell. quickly, all of us had to leap into action and link arms because there's no barrier. There's no barrier across the stage. That People Shit. thought there's no point. You know, you're not going to need a barrier. Yeah. So we, we quickly all had to link arms to form a human barrier across the front to protect Les from the claws of these rabid fans the rest wow. of the game. Wow. Jesus. A mate of mine, actually, uh, he won't be listening, but big shout out to David Ryder Prangley, a mate of mine, um, served some time in um, Eric Faulkner's rollers. Uh, Right. uh, Yeah. And, um, you know, they're pretty popular on the German festival circuit. And apparently to this day, there are women of a certain age who go absolutely mental, crazy, throw themselves at Eric Faulkner, who's got to be you know, I'm guessing in his early 60s or something by now, yeah. it is still it's still dormant in in a, well, not even dormant, it's latent, rising, frothing to the surface, and a lot of people. <laughs> because I mean, like the obvious compare and contrast for the rollers is the Osmonds, and they, yeah, you know, and and obviously, you know, Tom Payton was putting out, oh, they're all good lads that don't have girlfriends that drink milk, but. You never got that feeling off them, did you? They were Scottish, for fuck's sake. You know, they'd, they'd <laughs> obviously been around the track a few more times than uh, than Donny. What are you actually saying about Scottish people? Could you just clarify that point for the listeners? Well, they're, 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 they've lived life, you know. That's all I mean by it. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm going to cut that now because you're scared now. <laughs> he lives in Nottingham. <laughs> you, you, you know what Price is. You know, what Price is hinted at there is. I think the most powerful thing that comes across to somebody. Obviously, I mean, I wasn't there. You know, I was two and a half. But at the time, I don't think people could fathom out why the hysteria about yeah. the Bay City Rollers and 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 what were they? I don't know what were they providing that was unique. Perhaps yeah. after the hysteria, as, as was mentioned earlier, of the glam years, they were they were presenting something a little bit more clean cut. And a bit more copable with, I guess. But uh, the most powerful feeling you get reading press from the era, from 75, which was the year where it went fucking nuts yeah. for that band, really. Yeah, right about um, not only in terms of success, but in terms of just the demented things that were happening oh, around yeah. them. You know, the the, the car accidents and, yeah. and, and all the rest of it. Um there's a palpable sense of just why is this happening? Yeah. There, there was obviously a big machine behind them in terms of Tom Parton and, and you know, um, a, a lot of PR going on. But nobody could really quite get to the nub of why kids were going so mental um, for the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. I mean, um, Shang I think, is a tune. This one, a bit less so. Yeah. I think the Rubettes had better songs. Oh, I love the Rubettes. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's, it's still a little bit unfathomable to me. Yeah why this band was without a doubt the one direction of that year they were yeah. they were they were absolute pop well, they, were, they were all directions everywhere they want. i mean you know <laughs> i have never seen i have never seen um such hysteria about a band in my life you know because i missed out on the mm. beatles i mean at the time i was six years old and none of the girls in my class were acting you know deranged it was a, a young you know early teenage thing so I couldn't, I couldn't understand. Yeah. It. It's like why are these, why, why is this, why is this number one and and the sweets number two? That's not right. The thing is, as soon, of course, as you start digging into the roller story, 
um, an older motif about pop music, I think, comes through. And that is that, yes, it's about youthful hysteria. Yes, it's about young people responding to, to music. Mm. But behind the scenes, it is about older people, sometimes older people fulfilling extremely squalid urges of their yes. own um, in, in, in crafting these pop acts and, and reading about Patton's treatment of the, of the rollers. It's... It's horrific. Oh, it really it's is. absolutely horrific. It's dark as fuck. Um, Have you read that book that came out last year? Um, I would love to from the little bits that I've read. I mean, just reading odds and sods about um, what they were put through at parties, what they were put through at the Walpole Disco and things like yeah. that. Um, it, it's just horrifying. And, 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 and in a way, I'm not, you know, it, you can understand almost why conspiracy theories would arise around pop music. Mm around these people behind the scenes who are kind of unseen in terms of being on stage but are pulling some really evil strings yeah. um uh creating absolute hysteria through a PR blitz but um but exploiting them i mean that is what is going on with the rollers in 75 total exploitation i mean yeah the book um when the screaming stops the dark history of the bay city rollers written by simon spence came out last year on omnibus um, I got it recently, and it is a complete wicker basket made of yew tree. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> I, I strongly recommend that people buy it just to read the prologue, which is about the, the Radio 1 fun day at Mallory Park in Leicestershire. Uh, the one where they're kind of like stuck on a, on a boating lake uh, and fans are, are, are pegging it across a racetrack to try and get to them. The race actually featured Noel Edmonds, John Peel... Annie Nightingale, Cozy Powell, and Emperor Roscoe. Whoa! Whoa! What, what beautiful synergy! I, I think the key to the appeal, perhaps, I'm just suggesting this, is uh, I mean, pop critics. We spend a lot of time kind of um, celebrating and rhapsodising about the kind of outre elements of pop, the odd, the odd, uh, the oddities of pop, the freakishness of Lady yeah. Gaga is something that we celebrate. Um, whereas actually, what appeals to girls in particular, perhaps at that age in their lives is a sense of security in a sense. Yes. A sense that, 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 that these are these are lads yeah. that, you know, are not so far away, yeah. that, that that kind of look like people in their own lives. And and, and I think that perhaps accounts for, for why they had such a strong fan base in, in a weird sense. You know what, you got a point there, Neil. We got a very good point there because, you know, the, the, it's basically girls going, oh, you know, I really, I'm really attracted to him. And oh, all my mates are as well. That's good. Whereas with whereas with whereas with lads of that age, they want to fancy someone that no one else does, <laughs> like Madame Shola. <laughs> yes, exactly like Madame Shola. Yeah. How dare you mock my love for Madame Shola? <laughs> I'm not mocking it. Right? It's a beautiful thing. No, you seriously, man. You 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 go ahead. I'm standing behind you, Simon. <laughs> not literally. That'd be hideous. But I mean, have you ever seen episodes of Shang no. Lang? No. They're awful. They're awful. I mean, the the obvious compare and contrast with Shanghai Lang is uh, the Mark Bolan show yeah, because yeah. same company, you know, a few years later. And whereas Mark Bolan's actually, you know, kind of introducing other bands and it's an opportunity for him to say, look, I know what's going on and, and all that kind of stuff. Basic rollers are left to their own devices and they cannot present to save their life. There is absolutely not one jot of charisma in mm-hmm. this band the only time you see any element of charisma is Les McEwen when he's holding a microphone and then he's a bit of a swaggering Jack the Lad but you, you, you take that you take him off that stage and put him down in front of a microphone they're awful 
But it, it's part of the appeal of boy bands. Really, is not out of worldness. The appeal of something yes. like the appeal of something like Take That. The appeal of something like E Seventeen. Um, God, I'm going to show me age here. <laughs> the appeal was their kind, their sort of spotty closeness to home, in a sense. Uh, in that, in that way, I mean, I, I've been to see freakish pop acts. I mean, I went to say I, I can see the hysteria of Marilyn Manson concert, for instance, yeah. and, and understand it, but it did not compare at any any point. The, the most extreme gig I ever saw in my life was E17 at the Albert Hall. Because yes. because just the power of that hysteria, that mass hysteria, is is yeah. it is a Nuremberg type feeling, um, yeah. and and I think that's uh, that's perhaps what what that, that that kind of everyday could be your next door neighbour, but he's a pop star thing that that, yeah. that pulled so many people in. I don't think the, the Rollers records stand up much. Shangalang no. has its moments, but yeah, I mean, I, this started. I thought. I thought for a moment it was Rubette's Sugar Baby Love and I, and I fucking love that song um, but it wasn't um, can't really see the appeal myself Pricey might know better no I completely agree um, they you know I if, if, if there's anything about them to love I you know I wouldn't sort of pretend otherwise yeah, yeah. but um, nah they've never done anything for me apart from you know one and a half songs yeah and, and the other thing the only other thing men- worth mentioning about this performance is that the audience are incredibly subdued for the time what did they do to get them that calmed down? Let them stroke a Dulux dog? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I bet you one of the, the floor manager actually gave them a serious talking to and and, yeah. and told them to behave themselves. And perhaps yes. you know, at that time when a grown-up tells you that, you might actually listen. You're on television now. <laughs> Don't let yourself down. Don't let your mum down. Don't, Don't let, let your, your school, school down. down. <laughs> <laughs> So, Bye Bye Baby would stay at number one for another two weeks before being knocked off the top by Oh Boy by Mud. It would sell nearly one million copies in the UK, becoming the top-selling single of 1975. It kept There's a Whole Lot of Loving by Guys and Dolls, Fox on the Run by Sweet and Honey by Bobby Goldsborough off the number one spot. The follow-up single, Give a Little Love, also got to number one and it would be their last UK number one. A couple of weeks later, the madness began when the UK tour started. A police officer died of a heart attack whilst trying to hold back fans in Manchester, and Tam Payton gave his widow a ticket for a gig in Glasgow. Oh, well, that makes everything okay. And she took it. (laughs) Yeah, and she took it. Les McEwen knocked down and killed an old woman in Edinburgh, and the band signed with Arista Records and started to focus their attention on America. We've got to say bye-bye. Top of the pile, super smile for the Bay City Rollers, and bye-bye, baby. Seven days from now, same time, same place, we've got a date. Get down tonight, Casey in the Sunshine Band. Formed in Florida in 1973 by Harry Casey, a record shop worker, and Richard Finch, an engineer at the nearby TK Records, Casey and the Sunshine Band first hit the UK chart in 1974 with Queen of Clubs, which got to number seven in August of that year. This is the follow-up to Sound Your Funkin' Horn, which got to number 17 in December of 1974, and the first release from their new self-titled LP, and it's up from number 33 to number 28. Roscoe doesn't even mention one word about this. I think the BBC have 
told him to just get out as quickly as possible. This is probably the first the first trace of disco beginning to um, raise its lovely permy head. Although I've got to admit, um, I first got to know this one um, via an episode of Friends, and I know you're going right. to hate me. Well, screw you. I I enjoy Friends, all right. Um, where um, uh, um, there's there's an episode there's an episode where um, a guy called Casey rings up for Rachel, and Ross says, "What did he want?" And Chandler says, "Well, I'm guessing." He wants to do a little dance, you know, make a little love, pretty much get down tonight. Um, so, I, yeah, I didn't know what they're on about, so I went out and searched for that song, and it's it's a bit of a banger. But, yeah, Casey and the Sunshine Band, um, what's interesting about them to me is that they are basically the house band of the TK label. Yes. Um, so that Who means... Who put out some amazing tunes. Yeah, um, Casey and the Sunshine Band played on Rock Your Baby by George McRae, yeah. which is yeah, yeah. possibly the greatest record ever made. I mean, I mentioned Silly Games by Janet Kay earlier. Those two records mm. for me mm. are, you know, in the top 10 greatest records ever made. So I've got to yeah. say, it's not, it's yeah, not yeah, even yeah, the best George McRae record. What do you reckon then? It's been so long. I get lifted. I get lifted, man. Okay, right. That is a great tune. Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, I decided to keep coming back to DJing, but they were last hour a sort of guaranteed uh, a good tune to play because that's the way I like it. Shake, shake, that's shake. Tune, isn't it? You know, get down tonight. I mean, all of these, um, I'm, I'm sure anyone who's DJed knows that thing where in the first few hours, not many people are dancing and people come up and say, when are you going to play something people can fucking dance yes. to? Got, <laughs> or have you got any Oasis? <laughs> yeah. But it's, I mean, the KC, KC would be one of those things that I'd hold back for that last hour because I don't care who you are, you're going to dance to And there's this really interesting kind of light, almost sort of salsa Latin kind of feel to Casey and the Sunshine Band's take on disco. And I think it does come from, come from you know, coming from Miami, from the kind of, that, that kind of Latin world. Um, and there's, there's actually a really good book about the development of disco called Saturday Night Forever by Alan Jones and UC Kansanen, um, mm. which goes into all this about how all these different strands uh, kind of, kind of yeah. you know, were uh, interwoven at the same time. There, there was no one kind of defining disco sound. And once you've noticed that and, and you, you hear that kind of Casey and the Sunshine Band sound, you start noticing it everywhere. Um, and and yeah. you can almost yeah. sort of say, I bet that record's from Miami, you know, and it, it, turns, it yeah. often turns out that it was. yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. Absolutely laying the ground... Well, not laying the groundwork for disco, but it, it's got that... It, the crucial thing is the smoothness of the voice, but the propulsion of the sound. Uh, it's that combination. Um, and George McCray, I think, is a really good thing to bring up because it's a, it's a similar thing. There's no gnarliness or grittiness in Casey's vocal on yeah. this. It's, it, it, it's smooth and sits with the groove beautifully. So, yeah, Roscoe, not talking about it, it's been a bit of a dick because it's like the second best record on the, on the whole show. I'm casting through the charts now, and disco-wise, it's only this and uh, Pick Up The Pieces by the Average White Band who are anywhere near what disco was going to be. So, yeah, I think, I, I think a bit of sand's being put down here. Yeah. Well, don't forget, this is also, I mean, 75, we were talking earlier about how, is it the Nadir or were there good things going on? Well, another thing about 75, really, Autobahn came out in 75, yes. you know, and, and Cool Herc started doing the first kind of mixing between two decks yeah. um, at block parties in 75. So there is a truth that everything was about to happen, but the idea that that everything was only going to be punk or something, I don't yeah, think good so. Point. There, were, there were big yeah. changes, there were big changes about to break, yeah. but they were going on all over the world in all kinds of different areas. Yeah. And yeah, obviously top of the pops in 75 is the kind of the arse end in a way yeah. 
of that world where where all of that hasn't yet crashed into the, the mainstream. I've got to say that there is one other track in the countdown at the start that was probably a disco track because moments and whatnots were on there. And I don't of know course, if that was yes. Dolly My Love. Was it mm. Girls or Dolly My Love? But either it was one girls, of those. Yes. Right. Either, you're right. Yeah, either one of those tunes. You're yeah, right. yeah. You're right. I mean, I, I count that more as a, a, of a stylistics kind of thing. But okay. no, you're right. All you right. can dance to mm-hmm. it. Fuck it. So getting down tonight, nudged up to number 26 the following week and got as high as number 24. The follow-up release, That's The Way I Like It, got to number four and the band will pop up in the charts right up until 1983. So what's on television afterwards? Well, on BBC One, there's a repeat of the episode of The Liver Birds where Polly decides that she needs some new glasses. Then the first episode in the new series of Are You Being Served, where the ladies' department are forced to share a counter with the men's department. And then there's a play for today by Dennis Potter. BBC Two has Aqua Cops, a short film about the underwater search unit of the Lancashire Police. (laughs) That's what it's about. They'll probably find a bike or something. In a canal. Followed by a review starring Twiggy and Paul Jones and finishes us off the night with Poems and Pints, where the Welsh take a wry sideways look at themselves as Max Boyce sings something about rugby in Clenethley Rugby Social Club. Did I say that all right, Simon? (sighs) It's just a thought of, no, I'm not even, go, I, go, no, go I, I, I'm saying, I, I'm not going to say a word, no, no, because uh, there's, no, I, I can't say what I was going to say. Sorry, carry on. Assume the worst, listener. ITV is showing the episode of Man About the House where Robin pretends to be George and Mildred's son in order to help them keep a tax fiddle going. Basically the same as that episode of Steptoe and Son, but shit and a repeat of Special Branch, the first series made by Houston Films, and the forerunner of The Sweeney and The Professionals. And that is that. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Um, well, it's got to be the goodies, basically, you know, because I was a small child, and you could jump yes. around and pretend to be one of them and do the silly dance. And, you know, that's that's all you really wanted in those days. Yeah, that'd be it. And, and it was great and very rare that people from one TV show ended up on another TV show. Yeah. It's like, these, it's, yeah. It's like yeah. you know, your streams crossing, as it were. <laughs> yeah. It'd be... It, Cross-platform yeah. brand synergizing. Yeah. It'd be like the Wombles being on Newsnight or something, wouldn't it? Man, that's, that's what I dream about. <laughs> well, they, they make a lot more bloody sense than the bloody politicians today, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> At least they deal with rubbish as opposed to talk it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Neil, you you you're new to this 1975 thing. What did you? What you? What would you be talking about in your old folks' home? I I I, th- I, I, I think I'd be talking about. <laughs> it would be the goodies, the most instantaneously kind of appealing performance in the whole show. Yeah. Um, as an ad, I mean, because um, it. Are you going to ask that question about what we'd buy? Because yes, I will. I yes, I'm going it, to. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think I'd buy that as well. Um, uh, at that age, yeah. looking back, obviously it'd be Cadigan. But um, but but yeah, um, it would it would just be. I mean, part of the amazement would be that they were on top of the pops, like you say. Yeah. Um, so familiar from that other show. And so what what are we buying on Saturday? With my current head on, um, Susan Cadigan, I think. Um, uh, at the time, yes. well, I was two and a fucking half, but um, it would have been the goodies. Yeah, I mean, if I had 
50p or however much Definitely. it was to buy a single in those days so or maybe even a quid so i could get a couple it would you know now uh with my kind of adult head on again yeah it would be uh susan cadigan or the sweet maybe both um uh, uh but um I, i've got both of those i'll tell you what i'm going to go and download straight away after this is jim gilstrap i love yes. that one that was brilliant yeah. um but yeah, if we're going to be honest, as a small child, Funky Gibbon yeah, all day definitely, long. Definitely, yeah. And what does this episode tell us about 1975? Is it as, is it as bad a year as as we thought it was going to be at the beginning before we looked at this? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. I I know um, you and uh, definitely Neil will disagree because I think it's all very well saying that. There, there was genre music out there uh, if you went to specialist shops mm. and listened to specialist radio shows. Or or you can say there are brilliant albums made. But the essence of pop is the single and it's the charts. And yeah. I think, you know, any year that is failing on that level is a failed year. So I, I'm going to say, yeah, um, it was pretty ropey, even if the hissing of summer lawns or whatever came out the yeah. same year. But, pro- but Pricey, is that why for you like years like 81 and 82 um do you know re- are really important to you because do, do you find top of the pops episodes from that era are like do you ever hit an episode that is like uniformly good that's a good question um pretty much pretty much actually yeah, yeah. um for me you know I've, I've said it a million times but you know the golden era of pop is 79 to 81 yeah. and it's precisely because um you had all these freaks and weirdos and outsiders and lunatics and eccentrics from, you know, the underground and, you know, from, from the avant-garde fringes suddenly coming in and seizing centre yeah. stage. Mm, yeah. um, and having number one records, not even not getting to number 35 in the charts, having number one records and changing lives, blowing people's yeah. minds. And, you know, pop is a transformative force. I really think it is. Um I, there's, there's a tweet I put out a while ago that people keep um, retweeting, reminding me <laughs> of that I said that how, however temporarily disappointing they might ever become, there are two things that I will always believe have the power to save us pop music and the Labour Party. <laughs> no, spot on. Spot on. Um, I mean, pop is, has revolutionary possibility that, it, that I think it still realises and realises. I think what happened basically. The episodes that you're talking about there, 81, 82, maybe 79 and 80 as well, um, the ratios have shifted completely. In this 75 episode, we and, and the other episode that we looked at a few a few weeks ago, um, the ratios are, we were picking out things like Sister Sledge, and, and in this episode, Susan Cadogan, as yeah. kind of rising above, and also the sweet one in this episode. And, and the ratios were like, you know, sort of five, six shit records, and these two shining out from the murk. Yeah. Um, what I noticed in the episodes that I've watched from, say, 79, 80, 81, is that, those, that, that, that that's that been reversed. And what you actually find is a lot of good stuff and then occasionally your spirits sink because some shite, yes. old-fashioned stuff yes. comes on. That <laughs> Two Irish blokes you. Yeah. turned up dressed like leprechauns in green satin or <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that, yeah that, you're right. That's the music that dominates this 75 episode. Later on, yeah. um, changes in British pop meant that those ratios had reversed. Yeah, I think yeah. what we found is that what, however good or bad the tunes have been, there's nothing on here that's going to turn someone's head around, is it? And make them go, oh my God, this is this is what I'm going to follow from now on. This is going to change the way I dress or the way I think or the way I feel about things. I oh, know, man. I had a shirt with a massive G on oh, the front. <laughs> 
No. Fuck's sake. <laughs> and I think we've talked 1975 to death here, so we're going to leave it at that. Um, this is the point where I bang on about how you can get hold of us, so I better do that now. Our website is www.chart-music.co.uk. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. We're on Twitter, um, chartmusictotp, uh, and that's how you get hold of us. Basically, how you got hold of us in the first place. Just keep doing that thing, really. So um, hopefully we'll be uh, ramping these up now. Um, I-, I want us to do uh, two a month. So we'll be fortnightly like smashes, hopefully. So... <laughs> All that remains to say is thank you very much, Simon Price. I, I, I guarantee that the next one we do, we will put it in your 1981 wheelhouse. Yes! Oh, I love you for that. that, yes. And I will just sit there and I will just find the shittest episode with <laughs> Sheena Easton and... and um, It'll be Joe Dolce, shut up your face at number yes, one, won't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah all <laughs> over, yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, Neil Kulkarni, thank you very much, sir. No worries, Ple- it's been a pleasure. Pleasure to have you back, mate, and hopefully we'll have you on again very soon. Oh, that'd be lovely. That'd be lovely. All that remains to say is thank you very much for listening. This has been Chart Music. My name is Al Needham. I am that woolly woolly. I'm something else. My name is King and I love to chase pussycats. Chart Music. That's Nazareth there and uh, my white bicycle. I can't actually see any white bicycles at the moment, but I can see, looking across the track behind me here, a solid block of cars and a solid block of people as well. And I think it's an awful long time since as many people have been here to Mallory Park on a Sunday afternoon. In fact, uh, just in case you were thinking of coming along and joining in the fun, may I just say that uh, the doors are closed so we can't actually accommodate any more people at all. Uh, we've got people going past... Uh, I think anybody taking a, a steamboat, waterboat ride with Tony Blackman this afternoon, may I just say, is taking their life in their hands. So let's go over now to the starting grid where Brian Jones, the general manager of the racing school at Brands Hatch, is waiting for us. Brian, do they look uh, just about ready to kick things off? Well, I had hoped to be able to say yes, but it looks as though we've got a delayed start. Probably ah. due to the fact that uh, there are some people on or near the circuit where they shouldn't be. People are not remembering that motor racing is dangerous and they've got to keep behind the barriers. Can you give me here a little idea of how long you think it'll be now? Well, it's difficult to say. I would think uh, another couple of minutes anyway, probably three or four. Now. I can tell you a little bit about what's happening on the grid and who's there if you want to know. Yeah, okay, just give us a quick rundown on who's there and ready to go, Brian, if you will. Well, there are some surprises here because uh, I think most people would expect to see Noel Edmonds on the front row, but no. Cozy Powell is, in fact, in pole position. Brian Gibson of Geordie is in the middle of the front row. Brian drove extremely well in practice. And on the outside, Emperor Roscoe. Behind them, we have Malcolm Lord and Mac Kisoon on the second row. And we have to go all the way back to the third row before we find John Peel, Noel Edmonds and Rick Price. Right you are, Brian. Well, thank you very much indeed. We're going to play another disc. We're going to play Hot Chocolate Disco Queen. We'll come back to you after that for the start. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. 
Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.